Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. On the morning of October 25th, 1415, the feast day of the twin saints Crispin and Crispinian, patrons of cobblers and tanners, a ragtag, exhausted English army, commanded by King Henry V, prepared to give battle on a muddy field near the village and castle of Agincourt. Facing them was the might of France, serried ranks of men-at-arms clad in burnished plate armor from head to foot. The French already overwhelmingly outnumbered the English, yet more were arriving with each passing moment. Two months before, in August 1415, King Henry had landed at the mouth of the River Seine with a powerful army. The English king was invading France in order to enforce his rights to vast French lands and to uphold his claim to the French throne. Henry captured the key port of Harfleur after a grueling six-week siege. Then, on October the 8th, he led his army of 900 men-at-arms, 5,000 longbow archers, and many non-combatants from Harfleur on a dash across northern France. Their destination was the English enclave and fortress of Calais. The march from Harfleur to Calais should have taken just eight days. Yet soon after the English set out, the French began to shadow them. When the English reached the River Somme at the fort of Blanchetac, they found the crossing barred by a strong enemy force. For a fortnight, the English tried, with growing desperation, to find another way across the river before they could be cornered by the French. At last, they discovered an unguarded ford. But no sooner were Henry and his men safely over the Somme that French heralds appeared before the king to deliver a chivalric challenge to battle. On October the 24th, as the English army neared the vicinity of Agincourt, they found the road to Calais blocked by a massive French host. King Henry had no choice except to fight. On the sharp, damp morning of St. Crispin's Day, the English king drew up his army in battle array. He, his lords, and their men-at-arms on foot at the center of the formation, flanked by wide wings of archers. To protect themselves against a French cavalry charge, the long bowmen had planted into the muddy ground in front of them rows of stout sharpened stakes. Henry and his captains wanted to fight a defensive battle, but the French made no move. The French King Charles was not on the field. Many years before, he had fallen victim to a strange, incapacitating madness. In his stead, his host was commanded by the greatest lords of France. They knew the longer they waited, the stronger they would become, the English weaker. King Henry realized he had to make the first move. According to some sources, he ordered his men to advance with a cry, In the name of Almighty God and of St. George, avant banner. Other sources state the king's command was the briefer, more prosaic, fellas, let's go. The archers uprooted their stakes. Then the English marched until they were just within bowshot of the enemy. The archers hammered their stakes into the wet earth, then sharpened their ends again into points. Incredibly, while all this was happening, the French remained motionless. Henry now ordered his archers to shoot. The king knew that at this extreme range, the arrows would do little harm to the ironclad foe. Instead, 
he was hoping to provoke them into attacking. Sir Thomas Erpingham, commander of the archers, stepped out from the English battle line. He tossed his baton of office high into the air, at the same time giving a great shout, Now strike! The snap and thrum of five thousand bowstrings answered him. A dark cloud of arrows soared up and shadowed the wan autumn sun. A moment later, there was a chorus of clattering and banging as arrowheads bounced, bounded, and ricocheted off the helmeted heads and armored shoulders and breasts of the French men-at-arms. A cacophony of furious shouts, shrill trumpet calls, and urgent drumbeats burst forth. Then, at last, just as King Henry had hoped, the French charged. When the battle ended many hours later, the English had won an astounding, unexpected victory. Many thousands of Frenchmen lay dead. Many thousands were prisoners. These victims, killed and captured, were the flower of the French nobility. The survivors were in ignominious flight. By October 29th, Henry and his victorious army were in Calais. Eighteen days later, the king boarded a ship for home. When he landed, he was greeted by rapturous crowds. His subjects lined the roads from the coast to Canterbury Cathedral, where Henry prostrated himself at the shrine of St. Thomas Becket and gave thanks to God. The celebratory pageantry and popular rejoicing climaxed in London, which the king triumphantly entered on November the 24th. For Henry V, Agincourt represented, in the words of the English chroniclers, a noble beginning. In 1417, he returned to France with a new army and embarked on a systematic conquest of Normandy. Two years later, the entire province was in his hands. Then Henry turned his army against Paris. The hapless French king Charles VI sued for peace. By the Treaty of Troyes of May 1420, Charles agreed to give his daughter Catherine's hand in marriage to Henry. Even more consequentially, the French king was compelled to disinherit his own son and name the English king as heir. Thus, England stood on the brink of final triumph in the epic, brutal struggle that we call the Hundred Years' War. Agincourt has also bequeathed the greatest cultural legacy of any medieval battle. William Shakespeare immortalized Agincourt in his great play, Henry V. It features, among other things, one of the most stirring speeches in the English language. Many who are otherwise ignorant about the Hundred Years' War know of Harry the King and his band of brothers. Agincourt has since been the subject of novels, plays, poems, and the visual arts. In the 20th century, it was recreated in films starring such English master thespians as Laurence Olivier and Kenneth Branagh. More recently, the battle was refought with vivid violence and considerable historical license in a Netflix production starring Timothy, or, if you're of a French persuasion, Timothée Chalamet as Henry V. In 2021, The Hundred Years' War will get the Ridley Scott treatment, with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck in the starring roles. I'm hoping for goodwill hunting with swords. Last, and certainly not least, Agincourt is still a touchstone of Englishness. It supposedly saw the plucky, tenacious, ordinary Englishman, the yeoman, wield the trusty national weapon, the longbow, to humble the arrogant French chivalry. For all of its importance and fame, Agincourt was just one battle in the long succession of conflicts fought between the two most powerful and most advanced kingdoms of medieval Europe, England and France. 
from 1337 to 1453. Only in the 19th century did French historians dub these conflicts collectively La Guerre de Cent Ans. English historians soon translated this into the Hundred Years' War. The fundamental cause of enmity between the two kingdoms was the English king's possession of vast lands in France. The origins of these lands went back to 1066, when William, Duke of Normandy, won the Battle of Hastings and conquered Anglo-Saxon England, thus creating a realm that spanned the Channel. During the 12th century, under the first Plantagenet kings, the English possessions in France reached their maximum extent. They included Normandy, Maine, Anjou, Touraine, Poitou, and Aquitaine. Together, these territories made up roughly half of France and dwarfed the Ile de France, the region around Paris that was the principal domain of the French kings. But the English kings did not possess these lands in France by their own sovereign right. They held them as fiefs from the French kings. During the 13th century, the French kings exploited their feudal overlordship to roll back the English dominions. In 1202, King Philip II Augustus, whom we met in the Hattin episode briefly taking part in the Third Crusade, declared that he was confiscating the French fiefs of King John of England, the ineffectual brother and successor of Richard the Lionheart. In 1204 and 1205, French armies conquered Normandy and Anjou. John was unable to recover these lands, nor could his heir, Henry III. By 1259, England only held the Duchy of Aquitaine, which comprised the cities of Bordeaux and Bayonne with their extensive hinterlands in southwestern France. Henry III then signed the Treaty of Paris with King Louis IX of France. The key clause of this treaty confirmed the vassal status of the English kings and required them to pay homage to the French kings for their lands in Aquitaine. The clause read, And for what he shall give us and our heirs, we and our heirs will do him and his heirs, kings of France, liege homage for Bordeaux, Bayonne, and for Gascony, and for all the lands that we hold beyond the English Channel and we will hold of him as a peer of France and as Duke of Aquitaine. Henry III personally set a precedent by kneeling before Louis IX in the gardens of the royal palace on the Ile de la Cité in Paris. Far from ensuring a lasting settlement to the problem of English lands in France, the Treaty of Paris planted the seeds for chronic conflict. The French kings were determined to exercise full feudal authority over the Duchy of Aquitaine. Their goal was to weaken English rule so much that they would eventually be able to annex the duchy. At every change of monarch on either side of the channel, the French rulers demanded homage from their English vassals. The ceremony was performed in 1273, 1285, 1303, 1325, and 1328. Even worse, French royal courts claimed expansive jurisdiction within Aquitaine, these courts could even summon the King of England to appear in person before them in Paris. For the English kings, this situation, in which they were sovereign rulers in their own island kingdom, yet vassals in their continental domains, quickly became intolerable. Their goal became to exercise full sovereignty in Aquitaine. The attempts by the French kings to impose their authority as overlords of Aquitaine, and the English king's efforts to resist them, 
led directly to two wars in 1294-1298 and 1324-1327. Although the French made some conquests, neither war brought any significant or lasting changes to the status of the duchy. Nevertheless, the First War is particularly noteworthy because it presaged the Hundred Years' War in several crucial respects. The defense of Aquitaine against French attacks was largely left to its own inhabitants, particularly the numerous and warlike nobility of Gascony. King Edward I of England and the English army campaigned in Flanders. This region was closer to Paris. Even more importantly, the English found many allies there among disgruntled vassals of the French king. Finally, the War of 1294-1298 revealed that any conflict between England and France would be fought on a grand scale, requiring unprecedented mobilization of manpower and financial resources. In 1297, Edward I, faced by the spiraling costs of the war, was forced to reissue Magna Carta and to confirm Parliament's power to approve taxation, a major turning point in English history. In 1328, a second issue exploded that further damaged relations between England and France. The French king Charles IV died without an heir. His death brought an end to the Capetian dynasty, which had ruled France since 987. The king of England, Edward III, who was then just a youth of 15, had a strong blood claim to the French throne. Through his mother, the French princess Isabella, he was Charles IV's nephew. But a conclave of the French nobility determined that Edward's claim was invalid. The laws of royal succession in France barred women from taking the throne and ruling. The French nobles argued that the prohibition on female succession meant that Isabella had no rights to pass on to Edward. Instead, the nobles chose one of their own as King of France, Philip, Count of Valois. Philip was only the cousin of Charles IV. He was chosen not for reasons of blood right, but on grounds of suitability. He was 35 years old and already an experienced statesman and soldier. Equally importantly, he had lived all of his life in France. On May the 28th, 1328, Philip of Valois was crowned as Philip VI at Reims, the traditional coronation site of the French kings. He founded the Valois dynasty, which would last until 1589. However, Edward III and his successors would not abandon their claim to the throne of France. They asserted that Philip of Valois and his descendants were usurpers. As if the feudal conflict over Aquitaine and the disputed succession to the French throne were not bad enough, a third issue was pushing the kingdoms of France and England to come to blows, war in Scotland. Since at least 1291, the English kings had claimed to be feudal overlords of the Scottish kings. The Scots, however, resisted fiercely and tenaciously. Fans of the Mel Gibson epic Braveheart, and here's your chance to yell, Freedom, know this to be the age of William Wallace and Robert Bruce. In their struggle against the English, the Scots found an able, willing, and loyal friend in the French. In 1295, the kingdoms of Scotland and France forged the famous Old Alliance, promising each other military aid against the mutual English enemy. With Robert Bruce's great victory over King Edward II of England at Bannockburn in 1314, Scotland had succeeded in securing its independence. As soon as he became king in 1327, 
Edward III was determined to reassert English overlordship. But Edward's first invasion of Scotland was a failure, and he was forced to make what came to be called the Shameful Peace with Robert Bruce, in which he promised that the realm of Scotland shall remain forever to the eminent prince Lord Robert, by the grace of God, illustrious King of Scots, our ally and dearest friend, and to his heirs and successors, divided in all things from the realm of England, entire, free, and quit, and without any subjection, servitude, claim, or demand. Soon enough, though, Edward was handed another opportunity to intervene in Scotland, and this time to much greater effect. Robert Bruce died in 1329, leaving as his heir his five-year-old son, who became King David II. Child King succession was disputed by Edward Balliol, whose father had been King of Scotland in 1291. With tacit support from Edward III, Balliol invaded Scotland from England in 1332 and won a victory at Dublin Moor. This success encouraged Edward to invade himself with his army in 1333. For the next three years, the King of England would campaign personally in Scotland. While Edward III was embroiled in Scotland, Philip VI of France was taking a series of aggressively provocative actions against him. Anne Curry, one of the most eminent historians of both the Hundred Years' War and the Battle of Agincourt, concludes that there is no real doubt that it was Philip who started the war with England. Even though he was King of France with the support of much of the French nobility, Philip felt that he had to neutralize Edward III's blood claim in order to feel fully secure on his throne. Furthermore, he was determined to continue the long-standing French policy of imposing feudal overlordship over the Duchy of Aquitaine. He combined both of these goals in 1329 when he threatened to invade Aquitaine with an army of 5,000 men-at-arms and 16,000 infantry. Newly on his throne and with his forces committed to Scotland, Edward felt that he could not face such a threat. He therefore rushed in person to France. At Amiens Cathedral, he paid homage to Philip. With this act, Edward both recognized that Philip was king and acknowledged that he was Philip's vassal in exchange for possession of Aquitaine. This was how a contemporary French text recorded the event. I become your man for the Duchy of Aquitaine and its appurtenances that I hold of you as Duke and Peer of France, according to the peace treaty made in the past. And then the hands of the King of England were put between those of the King of France, and the kiss was given by the King of France to the King of England. But Philip VI remained unsatisfied with this humiliation and subordination of his rival. In 1331, he threatened to confiscate Edward's revenues from Aquitaine, which forced the English king to renew his homage. Then, over the next five years, Philip exploited every opening to assert his feudal jurisdiction in the duchy. Furthermore, the French king meddled in Scotland. In 1326, he renewed the old alliance. Following Edward's crushing defeat of the Scottish armies at the Battle of Halidon Hill in 1333, the boy king David II was forced to flee into exile. Philip gave him sanctuary at his court. The French king then declared that any settlement of the dispute over Aquitaine had to include Scotland as well. This announcement had the effect of tying Edward's hands in Scotland while making the problems of Aquitaine even harder to resolve. 
the final rush to war took place in 1336. Philip VI had long been planning to go on crusade. If he had been able to proceed, a great clash between England and France could have been avoided, but Pope Benedict XII informed him that he could not go as long as conflicts raged in Aquitaine and Scotland. As Jonathan Sumtian, author of a monumental narrative history of the Hundred Years' War, states, French resources were liberated for aggressive ventures elsewhere. The French fleet that had been massing in Marseille to take Philip to the Holy Land was transferred to the Channel. During the summer of 1336, French ships raided the English coasts. Wild rumors raced across the kingdom that Philip was planning an invasion. In reality, the king of France was massing forces to attack Aquitaine. According to Sumtian, Edward III and the other English leaders concluded that war with France was now inevitable. Although an English embassy hurried to Paris to try to negotiate a diplomatic solution to the escalating crisis, the kingdom began mobilizing on land and sea. Philip launched his final provocation in the winter of 1336. His brother-in-law, Robert of Artois, was then in England under the protection of Edward III. Once one of his key allies and closest advisors, Robert had caused the French king great harm through his endless machinations, including forgery and murder, to claim the wealthy and strategically located county of Artois. At the English court, he had provided Edward III with vital intelligence about French political and military affairs. He also continually reminded the English king of his claim to the French throne. On December the 26th, 1336, Philip VI dispatched a letter to Edward III ordering him to surrender Robert of Artois, whom he dubbed the mortal enemy of the French crown. The letter, however, was not delivered to Edward in England, but to Sir Oliver Ingham, the Seneschal of Aquitaine, the chief English official and military commander in the duchy. Philip was demanding Edward's obedience as his vassal. Yet the French king's authority as overlord did not extend to England. With his letter, Philip was attempting to kill two birds with one stone. He sought to put an end to the irritant that was Robert of Artois, and he was creating a pretext to confiscate Aquitaine. Edward refused to give in to Philip's demand. Instead, in March 1337, he summoned Parliament in order to accelerate preparations for war. In April, Philip issued the Arrière-Bon, a general call to arms to all his subjects, noble and commoner. Then, on May 24th, Philip announced that Aquitaine was confiscated to the French crown. As there was never a formal declaration of war, this event traditionally marks the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. The fighting escalated gradually. In the first two years of the war, the main theater was Aquitaine. There, the French forces began their attacks within six weeks of Philip VI's declaration of confiscation. The French took English stronghold after English stronghold, gradually closing in on Bordeaux, the capital of the duchy. Edward III appeared to have originally intended to campaign in Aquitaine with the English royal army, but at some point he decided to entrust Aquitaine's defense to the capable Seneschal Ingham and the local nobility. The King of England instead set his sights on Flanders, a region in northern France close to Paris, and where the English had numerous potential allies among the Flemish princes as well as disgruntled vassals of Philip VI. 
Edward's preparations, particularly raising money and finding allies, took considerable time. He only crossed the channel to Flanders in July 1338. Finally, Edward was ready in September 1339. He invaded France with an army of English troops and Flemish allies. Philip VI gathered his host to meet him. Before he marched out, the King of France went to the Abbey of Saint-Denis and retrieved the royal war banner, the Oriflamme. By October 1339, the two kings appeared headed for the first great trial of arms of the Hundred Years' War. The decision by Philip VI to force war on Edward III was hardly rash. Rather, the French king must have calculated that he enjoyed a position of overwhelming strength. The kingdom he ruled was the largest, wealthiest, and most populous in Christendom. According to the great French medievalist Ferdinand Lot, there were just over 16 million French subjects in 1300. These assets translated to awesome military strength. The royal army of France was the largest of all feudal hosts. Moreover, French men-at-arms were widely considered the best in the world. As recently as 1328, Philip VI had led his host to victory over the tough militias of the Flemish towns at the Battle of Kassel. By comparison, King Edward III's realm and its military might seemed puny. Including England and his beleaguered lands in France, Edward ruled over perhaps seven million people. Moreover, he would have to divide his outnumbered forces among three different theatres, Scotland, Aquitaine, and Flanders. And not least, following numerous defeats at the hands of the Scots, the reputation of English arms and fighting men at the beginning of the 14th century was low. According to an adage widespread in Europe, two Englishmen were no match for a single decrepit Scot. Yet, from the very beginning of the Hundred Years' War, events would reveal that France was weaker and England more formidable than first appeared. The critical French weakness that would decisively determine the course and character of the war was internal division. Philip VI's immense realm was far from a united kingdom. The French king directly ruled only the royal demesne, which comprised the Ile de France and territories that had become attached to it over the course of the 13th century, such as Anjou and Maine. The remainder of France was fragmented into a myriad of political units, duchies, counties, baronies, lordships, and autonomous towns. The most important of these units were appanage and principalities. An appanage was a territory granted by the king to a younger son of the royal family to rule as his own. The greatest appanage of them all was Burgundy. Beginning in the second half of the 14th century, the dukes of Burgundy would become the most powerful subjects of the kings of France and soon after their most dangerous rivals, playing a starring role in the events leading up to Agincourt and in the last phase of the Hundred Years' War. In addition to the appanage, there were semi-independent principalities as old as France itself, and ruled by dynasties that only reluctantly acknowledged the ultimate sovereignty of the French crown. Among these were the Duchy of Brittany, the Celtic realm in the west of France, and the Kingdom of Navarre in the Pyrenees Mountains in the far south. While all these political units, from the largest appanage to the smallest county, owed allegiance and obedience to the French king, they were also essentially self-governing. More importantly, 
they raised and controlled their own military forces. Thus, great swathes of France had the wherewithal to defy the crown if they decided that royal power threatened their autonomy and their interests. But the key reason why England was able to match and even dominate France for much of the Hundred Years' War was the splendid fighting qualities of the English armies. For between the defeat at Bannockburn in 1314 and King Edward III's first campaign in France in 1339, the English war machine was transformed into the most formidable and potent in all Christendom. So far-reaching was this transformation that the historian Michael Prestwich claims it amounted to nothing less than a military revolution. The great English battlefield triumphs of Crecy, Poitiers, and Agincourt have been forever linked with the longbow. Unfortunately, the longbow has also been enshrouded by misconceptions and myths. It has been characterized as a superweapon, as a medieval machine gun, or even medieval artillery. Furthermore, the longbow has become wrapped up with notions of Englishness. Historical writers like Charles Oman and Alfred Byrne, as well as novelists like Bernard Cornwell, have depicted disciplined, phlegmatic, longbow-armed yeomen of England shooting down the arrogant, excitable chivalry of France. As we'll see, the longbow is indeed a fearsome instrument of war, yet it never won battles by itself. In fact, its battlefield potency during the Hundred Years' War flowed from and depended on the changes that revolutionized the English armies of Edward III. One of the most important changes was decidedly unglamorous, and so perhaps has not received the attention it deserves from medieval history buffs. It had to do with how English troops were recruited, remunerated, and organized. We associate medieval armies with feudalism, and during the 13th century, English armies were still largely feudal hosts. When he went to war, the King of England issued a summons to his vassals. The nobles and gentry who held landed fiefs from him paid him homage and therefore owed him military service. Vassals were required to serve personally in his host as well as bring along their bands of followers. All these men mustered as heavily armed and heavily armored cavalrymen. Today, the medieval mounted soldier has tended to be called the knight, but this can be a misnomer. A knight was a lower-ranking member of the nobility. The term used at the time of the Hundred Years' War by both the English and French, and which we shall use, was man-at-arms, in French, homme d'armes. In addition to fief-holding nobles, the king could also call up commoners by issuing commissions of array to mobilize levies in the English shires. The arrayed men joined the royal host as lightly armed and armored infantry or archers. These traditional methods of recruitment could produce large forces. The host that King Edward II led to defeat at the hands of Robert Bruce and the Scots at Bannockburn in 1314 consisted of 2,500 men-at-arms and 15,000 infantry levied from the shires. Yet already by the 1300s, this feudal military system was breaking down. The English kings were now fighting long, large-scale wars in Wales, Scotland, and France. Their vassals were obligated to perform just 40 days of military service each year, which no longer came close to meeting the king's requirements. From the nobility's perspective, feudal military service, being unpaid, was an onerous, expensive burden. As a result, 
nobles grew increasingly resentful about joining the king's host, especially if it was going to fight abroad. The Knights of England, it was said, did not give a bean for all of France. Commoners also showed a marked lack of enthusiasm. When Edward I campaigned in Scotland between 1296 and 1307, the Shire levies, raised by commissions of array, suffered from massive desertions. Although English kings would resort to the feudal summons occasionally in the 14th century, it was used for the last time by Richard II in 1385, they began searching for more effective means to create their armies. The solution that the English kings hit upon was paid military service by volunteers. At the beginning of each campaign, the kings raised armies by making contracts with individual captains who would provide a certain number of soldiers. These contracts came to possess a specific physical form, a standard set of terms, and a distinctive name, the indenture of war. The earliest indentures date back to the 1270s. However, they became truly widespread in the 1330s and 1340s, underlining the shift of the English war machine from largely feudal hosts to wholly paid armies. An indenture of war was written on a single piece of parchment. The terms of the contract were copied out twice. The two parties then signed, witnessed, and applied their seals to the document. The parchment was then cut in two, not in a straight line, but in a wavy or indented one. Each party took one of the halves. If a dispute over contract terms ever arose, the parties were required to produce their halves, which were then joined together to make sure that the indents matched, indicating that they were parts of the original parchment. This was a simple yet ingenious method to prevent the production of false documents or the alteration of the contract's terms. These terms usually stipulated the number of men a captain had to raise, their composition and types of troops, the place of service, the length of service, which was the anticipated duration of the campaign, usually four months to up to a year, the dates of musters and inspections by royal officials, the amount and schedule of wages, financial bonuses such as the regard, a supplementary payment to men-at-arms to cover the increased cost of plate armor, and finally, regulations concerning the division of the spoils of war. Typically, the king expected to receive one-third to one-half of the proceeds from prisoners' ransoms and booty. Modern historians call the units raised by indentured captains retinues. There was never a uniform size nor organization for retinues. Instead, a retinue's size tended to reflect the social status of its captain. A humble knight's unit could be very small. In 1359, Sir Richard Pembridge's retinue and King Edward III's army consisted of nine fighting men. By contrast, in the same year, the Prince of Wales's retinue was nearly 1,500 strong, the equivalent of a small army. Such large contingents were usually put together through subcontracts. In 1381, for instance, Sir Thomas Felton contracted with the Crown to serve in Brittany with 1,000 men. Fifteen of the subcontracts by which he assembled his retinue survive today in the English archives. The largest of Felton's sub-retinues consisted of 120 men, the smallest just two men. During the Hundred Years' War, retinues were made up of two types of troops, men-at-arms and archers. Men-at-arms formed the armored, close-combat corps of English armies. 
At the beginning of the 14th century, a man-at-arms defensive gear comprised the male hauberk worn over a padded leather jerkin, a shield, and a helmet, usually a bassinet with a visor. This protective suite was not much different from that of the Frankish knights of the Battle of Hattin. The defensive equipment of men-at-arms was subsequently transformed by the adoption of plate armor. The male hauberk began to be reinforced by small pieces of solid iron plate. Some of our best evidence for this practice comes from the effigies and monumental brasses of knights' tombs. These show plate reinforcements worn over the hands, feet, arms, legs, and shoulders. An early type of iron breastplate also appeared, the so-called pair of plates that consisted of a series of connected lambs, broad iron strips riveted to a fabric base. The pair of plates was worn over the hauberk as added protection for the chest and torso. During the opening years of the Hundred Years' War, the best-equipped men-at-arms wore a type of transitional armor that combined mail with increasing amounts of plate. In the middle of the 14th century, major strides were made in the material, design, and production of plate armor. Blacksmiths and armorers built larger furnaces capable of reaching much higher temperatures. This development meant they could produce not just iron, but steel. Italian metalworkers then achieved a major breakthrough. They discovered that if heated steel was rapidly quenched by plunging into water, then tempered by reheating, a much harder metal could be produced. Armorers in Milan and northern Italy began making impressively resilient single-piece steel breastplates. By the end of the 14th century, armorers were able to make complete suits of iron or steel plate, white harness in the parlance of the day. The new armor was so effective and protective that men-at-arms could abandon the shield. Such high-quality armor immediately became much sought after. Milan became the center of an armor-making industry that exported pieces throughout Europe. Soon enough, other armorers followed the example of the Italians. Another center of plate armor production emerged in southern Germany. By the middle of the 15th century, workshops in Nuremberg, Augsburg, and Landshut were producing a distinctive Gothic-style armor for export. English and French smiths also began producing their own plate. Although the best armor, particularly Milanese suits of fully quenched, tempered steel remained expensive, mass production meant that plate armor became affordable to many men-at-arms. Effigies and brasses of numerous English lords and knights indicate that white harness had become commonplace by the time of Agincourt. At the beginning of the 14th century, the offensive gear of the English man-at-arms reflected his primary role as a mounted combatant. His principal weapon on horseback was the lance, which was about four meters long, iron-tipped, and made from hard wood. For hand-to-hand combat, the man-at-arms used a sidearm most commonly a sword. This weapon resembled the swords of the Franks at Hattin, about 76 to 83 centimeters long, double-edged, straight-bladed, and particularly suited for slashing cuts. The sword was supplemented by a dagger called a rondel or misericord. It was used to exploit gaps in an enemy's armor or to pry open his visor to dispatch him with a thrust through the eye or throat. A misericord was slim and typically about 40 centimeters long to allow maximum penetration into an enemy's body. The spread of plate armor forced important changes in weaponry. 
men-at-arms turned to heavier weapons, such as the warhammer, battle-axe, and mace. These could crush iron and steel plate, pulverizing the flesh and bone beneath, or knock an opponent to the ground, where he could be dispatched with dagger thrusts. In addition, the sword was transformed. The blade became longer, stiffer, and tapered to a pronounced point. These long swords, also called war swords, great swords, bastard swords, estoc, and grossmessers, could be gripped with two hands, which was made possible by the abandonment of the shield. They were highly versatile weapons, capable of blocking, slashing, and above all thrusting to great effect, even against plate armor. The longsword also encouraged a distinctive combat technique called half-sorting, in which the wielder gripped the blade with the second hand in order to better deflect blows or to guide as well as add force to strikes and thrusts. An essential piece of the man-at-arms kit was his warhorse. These animals were the product of careful breeding and rigorous training. They were therefore also men-at-arms' most expensive pieces of kit. A standard clause in indentures of war was restoratio equorum, or compensation by the royal treasury for the loss of a man-at-arms principal warhorse. To qualify for compensation, men-at-arms had to have their mounts inspected and appraised by royal officials. The surviving appraisal lists show that the average warhorse in 1339 was valued at 15 pounds, ranging from the 5-pound mounts of esquires to the 1,000-pound destriers of great captains such as dukes or princes. To put these figures into perspective, an English master carpenter plying his trade earned about 5 pence a day, or roughly 7 pounds a year. Today, many misconceptions persist about the medieval soldier and how he fought. One myth, propagated by movies, popular fiction, and even some historical accounts, is that plate armor was so heavy and cumbersome that it substantially hindered movement. The man-at-arms, encased in plate, was a clanking, lumbering, clumsy tin man who was essentially helpless when unhorsed. Nothing could be further from the truth. While suits of plate armor weighed about 25 kilograms, they were nevertheless flexible enough for an athletic wearer to move with at least 80% of normal agility. Modern researchers at the Royal Armouries Museum in Leeds have even been able to perform tumbles and cartwheels while wearing white harness. Another myth depicts the medieval soldier as relying on brute force in combat. In fact, the man-at-arms was a superbly trained fighter who wielded his weapon with finesse and highly sophisticated martial skill. The period of the Hundred Years' War coincided with the proliferation of Fechtbücher, or fight books, authored by professional masters-at-arms to advertise and impart their techniques, and often lavishly as well as beautifully illustrated. Fight books depict elaborate fighting systems for the full range of weapons employed by men-at-arms. These systems depended for their effectiveness on a judicious, carefully cultivated blend of strength, skill, and practice. John Clements, a leading authority on medieval weaponry and fighting methods, argues persuasively that the contents of the Fechtbücher accurately reflect the training and practices of contemporary warriors throughout most of Western Europe. The second type of soldier in English retinues has long been synonymous with the Hundred Years' War, the archer. Compared to his comrade, the man-at-arms, 
the archer was very lightly equipped. For protection, archers relied on a simple helmet and padded armor like a jack or gambeson, or at best, a brigandine, a canvas or leather jacket lined with small metal plates. For hand-to-hand combat, archers carried swords, axes, and daggers. The archer's principal weapon was, of course, the longbow. Modern popular culture depicts the longbow as a medieval superweapon. Growing up, I collected the Green Arrow and Hawkeye comics, DC and Marvel's superhero longbowmen. Robin Hood movies, almost a genre in their own right, have Errol Flynn, Kevin Costner, Russell Crowe, and an animated red fox, among others, performing amazing feats of longbow shooting. And who can forget Orlando Bloom as the elf archer Legolas, mowing down hordes of orcs in the Lord of the Rings films. So much for comics in Hollywood. What was the longbow actually like during its Hundred Years' War heyday? For a long time, this question has been difficult to answer because of a fundamental problem. There are no reliably attested surviving longbows from the Hundred Years' War. Although bows were made in their hundreds of thousands, the cheapness of their material and the simplicity of their manufacture meant they were simply thrown away after they were no longer useful. Medieval chronicles and histories contain numerous descriptions of the longbow in action. I'll be quoting several of these in the course of this episode. Illuminated manuscripts from the 14th and 15th centuries, such as the Luttrell Psalter and the Beauchamp Pageant, have many striking images of both the bow and the archers that shot them. But none of these sources reveal much about the longbow's physical property. In the absence of hard evidence from historical artifacts, Medieval historians and archery experts conjectured that Hundred Years' War longbows were roughly equivalent to modern sporting longbows in physical qualities and performance. Their draw weights, the amount of force to pull the bowstring to shooting position, were estimated to be 60 to 80 pounds. Knowledge of the longbow was revolutionized by the discovery of a shipwreck. On July 19, 1545, Mary Rose, Henry VIII's favorite warship sank in the Solent while on its way to do battle with the French fleet. The wreck settled on the seafloor and over time became buried under thick silt. It was discovered in 1971, then carefully explored and excavated during the next decade. Finally, in 1982, Mary Rose was raised and restored. Today, It forms the centerpiece of a magnificent museum at Portsmouth Historical Dockyard. Mary Rose's crew was known to have included a large complement of archers, still an important component of Tudor armies in 1545. Moreover, the Anthony Roll, a catalogue of Henry VIII's navy, preserved at Cambridge University's Magdalen College, indicated that the ship had 240 bows aboard. The excavators were therefore extremely hopeful that they would find longbows in the wreck. These hopes were amply and thrillingly fulfilled when divers discovered two chests packed with 84 longbows. Also found were thousands of arrows. The longbows from the chests and the arrows were consigned to the care of a team of experts that included historians, scientists, and archers. Perhaps the team's most unusual member was Robert Hardy, a distinguished stage and film actor. You probably know him as Cornelius Fudge, Minister of Magic in the Harry Potter movies, 
Hardy had become fascinated with the longbow as a child. He had subsequently devoted years of scholarly and practical study to it. He had already written a well-regarded book on the longbow by the time of Mary Rose's discovery. The experts first subjected the Mary Rose longbows to careful restoration and preservation work. After two years of this, the bows were looking beautiful. They were 1.8 to 2.13 meters long and made from a single stave of yew wood. The bow's outside, the back, was sapwood, the outer layer of the yew tree. The inside, the belly, was heartwood from the tree's core. The two layers gave the longbows an impressive blend of strength and spring. The experts, however, were soon confronted with a serious problem. After four and a half centuries of immersion in salt water, the crystal structure of the wood had deteriorated badly, reducing the strength of the bows by at least 50%. Therefore, physical testing of the rehabilitated Mary Rose bows could not accurately reveal their original draw weights. Bob Cui, a mathematician at the University of Amsterdam, was then commissioned to produce models of the bows' draw weights. The results of his study astonished the experts. The Mary Rose bows had a draw weight of 110 to 185 pounds. These figures were far higher than all previous estimations of the power of medieval longbows. Cui's findings were met with fierce skepticism from historians and above all from modern archers, who doubted that 15th and 16th century people could even bend, much less shoot, such massively powerful bows. To answer the skeptics, the Mary Rose experts decided to create replicas of the longbows, which they called approximations, then shoot them. A master bowyer named Roy King made these copies using Oregon yew, which the experts concluded most closely resembled the European timber used by medieval English bow makers. Roy King's first three approximation bows, ranging in draw weight from 102 to 135 pounds, were then placed in the hands of an expert archer named Simon Stanley. On the podcast's Twitter, at The Great Battles, I've posted a video of Simon Stanley shooting. His results completely vindicated the Mary Rose experts, particularly the modeling of Bob Cui. After some practice, he could draw the bows according to medieval methods, most notably pulling the string back to the ear, which greatly increased the bow's power. He could shoot heavy arrows identical to those found on Mary Rose to over 200 meters. The arrows had enormous force. 143 joules when shot, 80 joules on impact. An objection could be raised that the Mary Rose longbows are too far removed in time from the Hundred Years' War to draw useful comparison. Yet I think a compelling case can be made that these longbows were much like the weapons of Crécy, Poitiers, and Agincourt. The Tudor era was the twilight of English military archery. The longbow would soon be superseded by the first firearms. Surely English archers used bows that were at least as powerful during the era when their art was at its zenith, and they were the terrors of Europe. Not only were Hundred Years' War longbows powerful, they were also shot at an extremely high rate. The medieval chronicles and histories all attest to this aspect of the longbow's performance. It appears that a skilled archer could lose 12 to 15 arrows a minute, but such a feat would have exhausted the archer. In combat, 
an effective rate of fire would more likely have been six arrows per minute. The arrows struck with great force. Against unarmored or lightly armored targets, their effect would have been absolutely devastating, inflicting mortal or serious wounds at even long ranges. Historians also generally agree that longbow arrows could penetrate chainmail at short and medium distance. This indicated that the English longbow was more powerful than the other famous medieval bow we've encountered in this podcast, the composite recurve bow of the Turkic horse archers. However, longbow arrows would have been much less effective when a male hauberk was layered with a thickly padded garment, either an arming jacket under it or a gambeson over it. The ability of longbow arrows to penetrate plate armor has not been resolved. Instead, the issue has provoked an intense debate between two leading medieval military historians, Kelly de Vries and Clifford Rogers. De Vries doubts that arrows could penetrate plate armor at any range. The potency of the longbow depended not on the physical harm it inflicted, but rather on the psychological effects created by the sights, sounds, and sensations of thousands of arrows speeding at then hitting their targets. Rogers agrees the best plate armor, notably Milanese white harness, would have been impervious to arrows at any range. Yet he points out that armor of this quality would have been worn by only a handful of French men-at-arms. Most would have been equipped with suits of lower quality steel or even wrought iron. Against such armor, longbow arrows could pierce weak points such as helmet visors and limb coverings, perhaps even at 200 meters. At point-blank ranges, arrows could punch through even the thickest armor, such as breastplates and the tops of helmets, if shot by a very strong archer. Rogers bases his arguments on two distinct sets of evidence. His first set comes from medieval chronicles and histories, which mention again and again arrows maiming or killing fully armored French men-at-arms. Rogers derives his second set of evidence from modern tests of longbow arrows shot at plate armor. Such tests are hardly rare, as even a cursory search of YouTube reveals. But rigorous tests that offer useful, realistic data must account for a whole host of variables, including range, strength and skill of the archer, type of arrow, angle of impact, curvature of the armor struck, thickness and metallurgy of the armor, and the presence of padded under or overgarments. For his analysis, Rogers draws on only the most rigorous tests available. In the end, in the DeVries versus Rogers debate, I think Rogers makes the more persuasive case. The longbow could pierce the weak points in plate armor at most ranges and given the right conditions, even the strongest points at short ranges. The men who shot the longbow were as remarkable as their weapons. We tend to think of the medieval peasant or commoner as small, weak, unhealthy, and generally wretched. Perhaps you have visions of Baldric from Blackadder. Longbow archers did not fit this bill at all. Our best evidence comes from two archaeological finds of archers' bodies. First, on Mary Rose, remains for 178 people were found, of which 92 formed more or less complete skeletons. A combination of the nearby presence of archery equipment and forensic study of the remains indicates that, in the words of the archaeologist Anne Sterland, there was a group of specialist or professional archers among these men. Second, 
in 1996, a mass grave was discovered from the 1461 Battle of Towton. Analysis of the grave finds uncovered the remains of possible archers. In the cases of both Mary Rose and Towton, the archers were strongly built men, 170 to 182 centimeters tall. Moreover, shooting powerful longbows had changed their bodies. They had increased bone density in their overdeveloped shoulders, upper arms, elbows, and wrists. And the Mary Rose skeleton most confidently identified as a long bowman, which, following forensic reconstruction, is now on display at the museum as the royal archer, had a twisted spine. The toll on the archer's bodies points to an essential characteristic of the longbow. Archers had to take up the bow in childhood, then practice continuously with it in order to gain proficiency, much less mastery. As Hugh Latimer, Bishop of Worcester, eloquently stated in a sermon delivered before King Edward VI in 1549, The art of shooting hath been, in times past, much esteemed in this realm. In my time, my poor father was as diligent to teach me to shoot as to learn me any other thing. And so I think other men did their children. He taught me how to draw, how to lay my body in my bow, and not to draw with strength of arms as other nations do, but with strength of body. I had my bows made me according to my age and strength. As I increased in them, so my bows were made bigger and bigger, for men never shoot well unless they be brought up to it. The kings of England understood the need for constant training with the longbow. Beginning in the 13th century, they issued laws calling on all Englishmen to practice with the longbow. Perhaps the most famous of these archery laws was promulgated by Edward III in 1363. It required all able-bodied men between the ages of 16 and 60 to take their longbows and go to the target butts, usually set up behind the village church, every Sunday and feast day to learn and practice the art of shooting, whence by God's help come forth honor to the kingdom and advantage to the king in his actions of war. This statute was renewed in 1388 and again in 1410. The Tudor monarchs would issue similar laws down to the middle of the 16th century. The training sessions were hardly casual weekend outings. Under Henry VIII, a statute set the minimum distance for target shooting at 220 yards, or just over 200 meters. Longbow archers had begun to form an important part of English armies during the second half of the 13th century. Edward I, the Hammer of the Scots, employed longbowmen to devastating effect in his great victory over William Wallace at Falkirk in 1298. However, it required the transition to paid armies for longbow archers to reach their full potential. Edward I had recruited his archers using the traditional method of the Commission of Array. Because they were conscripted from the general population of the shires, arrayed archers were highly variable in skill, commitment, and quality of equipment. In the new paid armies raised after 1330, the longbow archers were volunteers. They were therefore better motivated, more highly skilled, and better equipped. Moreover, as we'll see, as the Hundred Years' War wore on, they were increasingly professional soldiers. The longbow archer then underwent two other key changes. 
First, beginning around 1334, archers became equipped with horses, which they rode on campaign and onto the battlefield before dismounting to fight. Very quickly, virtually all archers were mounted. They rode hackneys, riding animals much cheaper than the man-at-arms destrier. Nevertheless, this change was hugely significant because it vastly increased the mobility of English armies. The second key change was the rise of what historians called the mixed retinue. After 1342, retinues were made up of equal numbers of men-at-arms and mounted archers. This composition was specified in the indenture contracts that the king made with his captains. For instance, in 1347, Thomas Ugtred committed to provide 20 men-at-arms and 20 mounted longbowmen for a year. The new English armies, made up of indentured retinues of men-at-arms and archers, tended to be smaller than the old feudal hosts. However, they were far more effective militarily. Under the feudal system, nobles were summoned to arms regardless of their aptitude and enthusiasm for war. With indentures, the king could ensure that his captains were committed and skilled soldiers. In turn, the captains recruited high-quality trained fighting men to form their retinues. Great noble captains turned to their household retainers and servants for their men-at-arms. In addition, they drew archers from the yeomen who in peacetime brought their longbows to aid their lords in hunting, an activity the historian Barbara Hanawalt has argued created powerful social bonds. To this core of loyal men, the noble captain then often added friends and kindred. As a result, these retinues were, in the evocative words of Jonathan Sumtian, a miniature of English provincial society projected onto the battlefields of France. Such a unit had impressive cohesion and effectiveness. It also possessed a clear command structure. Finally, because royal inspections were a standard clause in indentures, the king could verify the quality and equipment of a retinue's troops. In addition to their potency in war, the new armies of indentured retinues had far-reaching social and political effects. They led to the transformation of what Andrew Eaton calls the English military community, the people who participated in war. In the days of the feudal host, in the days of the feudal host, the military community had embraced all nobles and commoners who could bear arms. With the shift to paid volunteer armies, the community became smaller and drawn from a narrower social base. At the top of the social hierarchy, many English nobles, no longer required to fight out of feudal obligation, withdrew from frequent military participation, preferring the management of their estates and carrying out their political responsibilities at home to campaigning in France. However, a few noble families became more militarized, with generation after generation fighting in the Hundred Years' War. Their bellicosity was enabled and encouraged by the pay and other financial inducements of the indenture system. Going to the wars was especially popular for noble families' younger sons, who stood to inherit very little or nothing at all. The career of such a nobleman is illustrated by the Nottinghamshire knight Sir Nicholas de Goosehill. He first fought in Scotland at the Battle of Halidon Hill in 1333, then spent the next 35 years campaigning in Ireland and France as a man-at-arms in several different retinues. 
Goosehill's life in arms is largely explained by the longevity of his parents, who only died in their 80s. War provided his livelihood until he could inherit his estate, which he only managed to do as an old man. In addition to militarized nobles like Goosehill, the new English military community included commoners who came to make arms their profession. Like their noble counterparts, they were drawn by the financial rewards of indentures to repeatedly go on campaign. Some were fortunate to find regular service with one of the great captains of the high nobility, such as the Black Prince or the Duke of Lancaster, John of Gaunt, forming the veteran corps of their retinues. But most had no such permanent commitment. Instead, they enlisted for one expedition after another in different theaters of the Hundred Years' War under the command of different captains. Most commoners served as mounted archers, but a surprising number also joined retinues as men-at-arms. As the Hundred Years' War wore on, a career pattern of sorts even developed, in which commoners began as archers, then later became men-at-arms. In whichever capacity they fought, commoners required some property. Men-at-arms had to be able to meet the costs of plate armor, weapons, and a war horse. Archers, a riding horse, and archery equipment. In addition, in order to acquire and maintain skill with the longbow, a commoner had to be able to afford considerable leisure time. The property requirement meant that military participation became restricted to the social class of small landholders called yeomen. The yeomen also happened to be the class that dominated the Chamber of the Commons in the English Parliament. After 1297, the Commons voted the king the taxes he needed to pay for his army. The vital military and fiscal roles of the yeomen contributed significantly to making Parliament an indispensable feature of the English political system. Key developments in the medieval English military revolution thus included the rise of paid armies and the indenture system, the reform of English forces into wholly mounted retinues of men-at-arms and longbowmen, and the restructuring of the English military community to include many long-serving veterans drawn from a smaller and narrower social base. The final developments were the most dramatic and had the most visibility on the battlefields of the Hundred Years' War. The creation of a distinctive, devastating tactical system and the formulation of a coherent campaigning strategy. Both the tactics and the strategy were forged in the crucible of the Scottish Wars. Though Scotland was a much poorer, less populous country than England, the Scots were exceptionally formidable adversaries. In defense of their kingdom, all Scotsmen, regardless of social rank, were potentially warriors. Like their English counterparts, Scottish nobles fought as mounted men-at-arms. But the real strength of Scottish armies was lightly armored infantry armed with long pikes. These infantrymen arrayed themselves in dense, deep formations called shiltrons. Presenting a bristling hedge of pike points, shiltrons were formidable against both cavalry and infantry. They could also march and maneuver swiftly on the battlefield. On campaign as well, Scottish armies were highly mobile and hard-hitting. Jean Le Bel, a chronicler from Liège, was accompanying the English has left us a vivid eyewitness account of the army that humbled King Edward III during his first war against Scotland in 1327. 
When the Scots want to pass into England, they are all mounted. The knights and esquires are mounted on good large rounces, and the other Scots on little hackneys. They bring no carts because of the mountainous terrain, nor do they carry any supplies of bread or wine. They are so little addicted to luxury that in time of war, they can subsist well enough for a long time on half-cooked meat, without bread and good river water uncut with wine. They do without pots and kettles, since they cook their meat inside the hides of the animals which they have skinned, and they well know that they will find a great abundance of cattle in the country they are raiding. They enter into England and burn and devastate the country and find so many cattle that they don't know what to do with them all. They have a good 3,000 men-at-arms, knights and esquires, mounted on good large rounces and coursers, and fully 20,000 men, armed in the local way, crafty and tough, mounted on their little hackneys. Against the aggressive, fast-moving Scots, the English feudal host had traditionally depended on a combination of cavalry charges by men-at-arms supported by arrow storms from longbow archers. However, the two arms were separately raised and commanded, and were also highly variable in quality. As a result, cavalry and archers were poorly coordinated and often did not fight well together. The tactical solution that the English military leaders hit upon was to have their men-at-arms dismount and fight on foot alongside the archers in an integrated disciplined formation. Furthermore, the English would fight on the defensive, inviting the Scots to attack them. The first large-scale test of the new tactics was the Battle of Halidon Hill of July 19, 1333. In support of Edward Balliol's claim to the Scottish throne, King Edward III had led an army into Scotland and besieged the town of Berwick. According to Clifford Rogers, the English king intended the siege as bait in order to draw the Scottish army into battle. In this he succeeded completely. On July 19th, the Scottish army of 1,200 mounted men-at-arms and 13,000 pike-armed infantry approached, determined to break through to Berwick. Edward took up a strong position on the crest of 150-meter-high Halidon Hill. We do not know the numbers for the English army, but it was outnumbered by the Scots, likely by two to one. Edward dismounted his men-at-arms and lined them up in three divisions, or battles. Each battle was flanked by wings of longbow archers. The Scots formed up in three massive shiltrons and charged up the hill. As soon as the enemy came within range, the longbowmen began shooting. The English Brute Chronicle describes the devastating effects of their arrows on the lightly armored Scots. Each division of the English army had two wings of fine archers. When the Scots came into contact, they fired their arrows as thickly as the rays of the sun, striking the Scots so that they fell in their thousands and they started to flee from the English in fear of their lives. Enough Scots survived and kept their courage to crash into the English battles, but the hand-to-hand fight on the hilltop was brief and one-sided. Exhausted by their uphill run and with their ranks badly thinned by the arrows, the Scots were no match for the fresh, well-armed, and armoured English men-at-arms. The Shiltrons began to dissolve as troops in the rear took to flight. Soon the entire Scottish army was fleeing. The English men-at-arms then mounted their war horses and pursued, 
chasing the enemy for 13 kilometers and cutting them down without mercy. Halidon Hill was the greatest English victory over the Scots in a generation. More importantly, it would provide the model for English tactics for the entirety of the Hundred Years' War. Not for the last time in their history, the English would learn to defeat the French by first beating up on their Celtic neighbours. In France, English armies, with only rare exceptions, chose to fight on the defensive. The men-at-arms dismounted and formed up shoulder-to-shoulder at the centre of the army. The longbowmen would be ranged on their flanks. The archers' arrow storms would decimate the enemy, disrupt their formations, and degrade their morale. Longbow fire alone could not stop an attack. The French always succeeded in charging home, but it did give the English men-at-arms the decisive edge in the hard-fought melees in which every battle culminated. This new tactical system turned men-at-arms and archers into partners, each dependent on the other for survival and victory. The change to defensive fighting on foot had significant consequences for the men-at-arms. They first had to alter their equipment. Plate armor had to be modified for dismounted combat, and the flowing surcoat discarded in favor of the shorter jupon. The lance, the weapon par excellence of the mounted charge, became a handy pike. English men-at-arms also adapted new weapons specially designed for fighting on foot. One of the most favored was the poleaxe, which consisted of a four to six foot wooden shaft topped by a long steel spike that was flanked on one side by an axe head and on the other by a spiked hammer. Perhaps most interestingly, the relegation of the warhorse to a secondary role, used only either in pursuit of the beaten foe or flight in the event of defeat, appeared to have affected the quality of mounts taken on campaign. The average appraisal for compensation for loss of warhorse dropped from 15 pounds in the first major campaign against France in 1338-1339 to about 9 pounds in the 1359-1360 expedition. The mentality of men-at-arms also had to change. The English nobles who made up most men-at-arms still self-consciously subscribed to the values of chivalry, honor, conspicuous courage, and individual glory. Fighting on foot in massed formations appeared to represent the negation of this value system. In reality, in the words of Andrew Eaton, the English aristocratic warrior appears to have reconciled himself to the tactical revolution rather quickly, and a clear distinction soon emerged in English military circles between deeds of chivalry, which were most appropriately performed on horseback, on the tournament field, and in those individual combats and small-scale encounters which often occurred on campaign, and the practical business of battlefield fighting, which was most effectively done on foot in disciplined tactical formations and combination with archers. Even after the Battle of Halidon Hill, Scotland would still not submit to Edward III. Although the boy King David Bruce fled into exile, many Scottish nobles continued to support him. More importantly, Philip of France promised David support in the form of money and men. Edward III would campaign personally in Scotland from 1334 to 1336. His campaigns involved fast-moving armies ravaging great swaths of the country, pillaging and burning villages, and terrorizing the civilian population. The epitome of these campaigns was the relief of Lochendorb Castle in 1336. 
with just a small force of 400 men-at-arms and 400 mounted archers, Edward set out from Perth in July. After lifting the siege of Lochendorb, the king and his troops then circled through northern Scotland, marauding as they went. Edward III had invented the standard English strategy for much of the Hundred Years' War, the Chevauchet, the fast-moving mounted raid designed to ravage rather than conquer territory. By pillaging and destroying property and subjecting people to murder, rape, and abuse, the Chevauchet afflicted, in the words of the 15th-century English soldier Sir John Fastolf, war cruel and sharp on an enemy civilian population. Its goals were to demonstrate English military superiority, degrade the enemy's willpower and capacity to resist, and damage the legitimacy of the enemy ruler by demonstrating his inability to protect his own subjects. Two years after King Edward ravaged northern Scotland, he and his army were ready to bring their military revolution to bear on a much more powerful and far more dangerous foe, France. They would achieve such startling feats of arms that by 1360, Jean Le Bel could write that the English were now the noblest and finest warriors that are known. On the late afternoon of June 24, 1340, an English fleet of 140 ships raced toward the coast of Flanders. Born on the rising evening tide, it was making straight for a French armada. On the English ships, Frantic final preparations for battle were being made. Longbowmen scrambled to the fighting castles erected at the bows, or climbed the rigging to reach the crow's nests perilously perched on mastheads. On the decks, men-at-arms donned helmets and made final adjustments to their armor. Sailors kept weather eyes on the wind and waves, but also made certain their weapons were close at hand. Priests circulated among the fighting men, dispensing blessings and murmuring last prayers. On his flagship, the Cog Thomas, King Edward III of England gazed at the fast-approaching enemy ships. They numbered at least 200 and were drawn up in three long lines that filled the tidal estuary of the Zvin and blocked the approaches to the port of Sluice. Among them were vessels far larger than anything in the English fleet, as well as sleek Genoese galleys, particularly deadly in close combat inshore. The day before, Edward's Flemish allies had implored him to avoid battle until they could join him with their own ships. But with the foe in sight, the king was in no mood to wait. After all, a victory would demonstrate God's grace in his war against France. As the fleets closed to contact, the archers on both sides began shooting, and the air filled with missiles. The English longbowmen quickly gained the upper hand. They could shoot faster, further, and more accurately than the crossbow-armed French. So heavy and deadly was the English arrow storm that, according to one chronicler, the French dared neither to look out nor to keep their heads up. Under the cover of the longbowmen, the English ships grappled the enemy vessels. The English men-at-arms charged onto the enemy's decks, and fierce hand-to-hand fighting broke out. Here, too, the English enjoyed a decisive superiority. Most of them were veterans of the Scottish campaigns, hardened by the victory of Halidon Hill and the northern Chevauchets. By contrast, their opponents were, according to the French Grand Chronique, poor fishermen and mariners not so skilled at arms as the English. They were cut down until the decks of the French ships were awash in blood and gore. 
many Frenchmen tried to escape from the swords and arrows of the English by jumping overboard. Most who managed to reach land were clubbed to death by the Flemings, who had rushed down to the shore to watch the battle. Fighting went on until full night. When it finally ended, the French had suffered a crushing defeat. Their fleet was almost completely annihilated. Only the Genoese galleys, led by their commander, the pirate Barbanero, and a handful of other ships escaped to sea. 20,000 Frenchmen lost their lives. So many French dead were cast into the sea that it was said afterward that if the fish of Flanders could talk, they would speak French. Sluice was a great naval victory. The English would not see its like again until Trafalgar. Edward III himself had been in the thick of the fighting, suffering a bad wound to the thigh. He could, though, console himself that God had shown him in his cause favor. He could also hope that Sluice represented the turn of the tide against France. For the opening years of the Hundred Years' War had been full of frustration and disappointment for the English king. He had crossed the channel with an army for the first time in July 1338. His destination had not been Aquitaine, but Flanders. There, Edward hoped to find powerful allies to aid him against Philip VI. Flanders itself was a restive French county. Its wealthy and populous towns had rebelled again and again against the King of France. In addition, Flanders was bordered by numerous principalities that owed nominal fealty to the Holy Roman Empire. Edward's queen, Philippa of Hainaut, had close ties of kinship or friendship with many of the princes. Edward spent the rest of 1338 building alliances. He achieved a major breakthrough in September, when the Holy Roman Emperor, Louis of Bavaria, appointed him imperial vicar in Flanders and France. With this dignity, the English king could call upon the help of the local imperial princes. Equally importantly, Edward promised these princes massive subsidies if they would join him with their armies. Edward finally invaded France on October 9, 1339. His army numbered 15,000, of which only 4,500 were English. As they advanced south from Cambrai, the English and their allies ravaged the countryside. Clifford Rogers persuasively argues that the pillaging had a strategic purpose. It was meant to draw the French into a great battle that would decide the war. Philip VI of France was ready to meet the invasion. He had taken the Oriflamme, the royal war banner, from the Abbey of Saint-Denis and called up the French nobility to join him. His host numbered about 30,000 men. Yet at first, the French king refused to move from his strong position at the fortress of Peronne. Though he could see the burning villages and even, according to one chronicler, feel wind-borne cinders falling on his head, Philip calculated that lack of supplies and the approach of winter would force the Anglo-Imperial army to retreat without the need for a battle. At last, the scale of the devastation compelled Philip to come out and fight. He sent a messenger to Edward, declaring that the French were willing to give battle on October 21st or 22nd. The two armies met near the village of La Flamangrie. Edward drew up the English troops in a formation like the one at Halidon Hill, with a center of dismounted men-at-arms flanked by wings of longbow archers. The imperial allies marveled at the novelty of the English array, but concluded it was good and profitable. Philip VI shared the imperial allies' conclusion. After studying the English army, he judged its position too strong to attack. 
According to the chronicler Jean Lebel, the French king's decision was made on the advice of his counselors, who pointed out the game was not on even terms. For if fortune turned against him so that he were defeated, he would lose his life and all his realm. But if it turned out that it was the others who were defeated, he, that is Philip, would not have conquered the realm of England, nor the lands or the possessions of the other lords of England. With a battle not in the offing, Edward III decided to retreat from France. The King of England planned to invade France again in 1340. He also had the opportunity to gain still more powerful allies. The great Flanders towns of Bruges, Ghent, and Ypres depended on English wool for the cloth-weaving industries that formed the basis of their prosperity. In addition, they were in rebellion against their nominal overlord, the Count of Flanders, who remained a loyal vassal of Philip of France. To legitimize the town's rebellion, and so entice them to join him with their formidable militia infantry, Edward III made a decision that would have enormous long-term consequences for the character, course, and duration of the Hundred Years' War. He decided to claim the throne of France. On January 26, 1340, in Ghent, he declared himself King of France and displayed a new coat of arms that showed the royal leopards of England quartered with the fleur-de-lis of France. Edward III had originally gone to war in order to free Aquitaine from French suzerainty and to end French interference in Scotland. He had recognized Philip of Valois as legitimate king of France when he had paid homage to him at Amiens in 1329. Even after his declaration at Ghent, he was probably not seriously intending to depose and replace Philip, but he had now dramatically raised the stakes of the war. As long as the war had been about just Aquitaine and Scotland, the English and French could reach compromise. Once the conflict became over who was rightful king of France, peace would only become possible if one side won an overwhelming victory. Edward III's decision was what made the war last a hundred years. The 1340 campaign began encouragingly for Edward III. Buoyed by his victory at Sluis and bolstered by his Flemish allies, he invaded France with not one but two armies. Robert of Artois, Philip VI's brother-in-law, an old arch-enemy, led one force comprised of Flemish militia and English archers to besiege Saint-Omer. Edward himself led the main army, composed of 1,300 English men-at-arms, 3,000 archers, 5,455 militiamen from Ghent, and 1,000 Flemish men-at-arms to besiege the town of Tournai. Edward was hoping to repeat the formula that had proved so successful against the Scots just seven years before. By beleaguering Tournai, he hoped to lure Philip VI into a decisive battle on English terms. But the campaign rapidly unraveled. Robert of Artois proved to be a far better political schemer than military commander. His forces were routed by the French defenders of Saint-Omer. Then, when Philip arrived near Tournai with the French host, he once again declined to fight. The French king calculated that Edward needed a battle more than he did. And Philip was right. Edward had promised his allies massive subsidies. To afford them, he had stretched his financial resources to their limits. When Edward ran out of funds, his Flemish allies abandoned him and went home. With their army disbanding, the English were forced to lift the siege of Tournai. On September the 25th, 1340, Edward III and Philip VI met at Esplechin and agreed to a six-month truce. Edward returned to England a bitterly disappointed man. 
After the expiry of the truce, the seat of war shifted to Aquitaine, which saw bitter seesaw fighting between French armies and local forces led by the English seneschal, Sir Oliver Ingham. This situation of chronic warfare saw the appearance of a new menace that would afflict France and even much of Western Europe until the end of the Hundred Years' War. Freebooting mercenaries, or routiers. The routiers were professional soldiers, both French and English, of no fixed allegiance, organizing themselves into companies, or route, in medieval French, they fought for whichever side was willing to pay them. When not in anyone's pay, they fought for themselves, pillaging and visiting violence on communities in French and English territories without discrimination. King Edward soon spied another opening to intervene in France. This opening was created by the fatal French problem of disunity. In April 1341, Duke John III of Brittany, one of Philip VI's most loyal vassals, died. To succeed him as Duke, Philip preferred Charles of Blois, John's nephew-in-law. But the dead Duke's half-brother, John de Montfort, claimed the duchy and beseeched Edward for support. Edward answered by sending an advance force of 1,600 men-at-arms and archers under one of his most trusted commanders, the Earl of Northampton. On September 30, 1342, near the town of Morlaix, Northampton's force was attacked by Charles of Blois, leading an army of French men-at-arms and Genoese mercenary crossbowmen. Northampton deployed his army in the English fashion with a center of dismounted men-at-arms and wings of longbowmen. The English then repulsed three successive French attacks. Morlaix was the first real battle of the Hundred Years' War. It also saw the successful debut in France of the English tactical system. A month after Morlaix, King Edward landed in Brittany with the main English army of 5,000 men. His campaign secured the south and west of the Breton Peninsula, including the important port of Brest, for the English and the Montfort faction. But the rest of the duchy remained loyal to Charles of Blois. Moreover, Brittany was simply too distant from the main centers of French power for the English to achieve anything decisive there. Philip VI never thought it necessary to campaign in Brittany in person. The Breton War of Succession would rage on until 1364. In 1344, with the war grinding on inconclusively, Pope Clement VI decided to step in. He invited English and French emissaries to a peace conference at Avignon. But the only result of the conference was to expose how deep the two sides' differences had become. The English demanded recognition of their king's claim to the French throne. This claim could be surrendered only in exchange for vast new territories to be held in full sovereignty. In effect, the English were calling for the partition of France. For their part, the French would only accept English-held lands in France as feudal dependencies of their king. The talks quickly broke down. The collapse of the Avignon Peace Conference provoked Edward of England to make a supreme effort to win the war. In 1344, he convened Parliament to ask for more funds. Although the English had been paying heavy war taxes for years, Parliament agreed to a two-year grant of money. But a special condition was imposed on the second year. The money could only be collected if the king crossed in person to France to bring an end to the war. As the representatives declared, 
They requested of our said Lord the King, by unanimous assent and each person of the Lord's for himself, that he would make an end to this war, either by battle or by a suitable peace, if he could get one, and that once our Lord the King should be ready and equipped to cross over to France in order to take whatever God might grant to him for the successful completion of his business, that he not abandon his expedition until he had brought things to a conclusion in one way or another not for letters, nor commands, nor requests of the Pope or anything else. The king gave his full assent to this request. In 1346, Edward was given his opportunity to cross over to France. The French curse of disunity was again at work. A dissident Norman nobleman named Godfrey d'Arcourt, lord of the strong castle of Saint-Sauveur-le-Vicomte in the Cotentin Peninsula, invited the English king to enter Normandy. Edward immediately grasped the strategic advantages offered by this move. Because of its proximity to England, Normandy offered an excellent base for Edward's army. In addition, unlike Brittany, Normandy was close to Paris and the French royal heartlands. Edward was also determined to fight an entirely different kind of campaign. His experiences in Flanders had shown him that allies were undependable and he would have to rely on his own forces. Using the money granted by Parliament, he mobilized no less than 15,000 men, 2,700 men-at-arms, 2,300 Welsh spearmen, 7,000 foot archers, and 3,000 mounted archers. This army was the largest ever fielded by England during the entire Hundred Years' War. On July 12, 1346, Edward and this army landed at St. Vastlahogue at the tip of the Cotentin Peninsula. But the most important change the King of England made was to his strategy. Clifford Rogers argues persuasively that from the beginning of the 1346 campaign, Edward intended to fight a decisive battle. In Flanders in 1339 and 1340, Philip had found it more advantageous not to fight. Edward, therefore, had to make it impossible for the King of France to refuse battle. Edward turned to the strategy he employed in Scotland, the Chevauchet. This time, the Chevauchet was executed on a far larger and more devastating scale. As the English army moved through Normandy in July, it flung out raiding parties to pillage and burn the countryside in a wide radius. The Welsh troops, the English chronicles report, marauded with particular abandon. The devastation continued when the army entered the domain of the French king in August. The overriding goal of the Chevauchet was to continually humiliate Philip VI for failing to defend his realm and thus goad him into action. Philip VI had immediately recognized the seriousness of the English invasion. He mobilized all available forces and recalled the substantial army he had sent to Aquitaine. According to Jean Froissart, whose chronicle is the most important source for this phase of the Hundred Years' War, Philip was greatly distressed at the devastation of his home territories. However, he would only give battle on his own terms and on ground of his own choosing. Edward refused to fight under such conditions. The result was a cat-and-mouse game along the Seine, with the English army marching along the river's south bank and the French host shadowing it from the north bank. On August 13th, the English army reached Poissy, dangerously close to Paris. Philip now sent a letter to Edward, challenging him to a battle in the open plains around the city. Edward declared that he was overjoyed by this news, but he was still unwilling to engage on French terms. He 
replied to Philip that if he wanted to fight, he could find the English army by following the Trail of Flames. Even as this response was being delivered, the English army was leaving Poissy. It raced northward, averaging 25 kilometers a day. As the English troops went, they continued to devastate a broad swath of land as they had done in Normandy and around Paris as part of their continuing effort to provoke the French king. Philip set off in pursuit. As the two armies approached the Somme River, he spotted a chance to trap the English. He ordered a strong detachment of elite troops to occupy the fort of Blanchetac. Edward and his army would then be blocked at the river to be caught and destroyed by the onrushing French host. But the English confounded this plan by defeating the troops holding Blanchetac and dashing across the fort. After crossing the Somme, the English army made its way to Crecy, some 14 kilometers from Blanchetac, and stopped. Many historians find this move deeply perplexing. Edward and his army could have got clean away from Philip and the French. The English ex-soldier Alfred Byrne, who wrote what is still one of the most popular military histories of the Hundred Years' War, states that the English army lingering at Crecy reminds one of a hunted fox stopping in the course of its flight to rob a henhouse. In fact, the decision to stop at Crecy was entirely consistent with King Edward's battle-seeking strategy. He had found the perfect battlefield. Crecy was located in the county of Ponthieu, which was an English-held enclave. The English army was therefore in friendly territory from which it could draw plentiful supplies. In the event of defeat, it could seek refuge in nearby strongholds. Furthermore, Edward knew that reinforcements were on the way. His Flemish allies and their tough militia infantry were on the march. Last, but certainly not least, the battlefield of Crecy was a strong defensive position. Among the English commanders who had chosen it was the Earl of Northampton, who had beaten the French at Morlaix and knew their tactics well. King Philip was finally ready to take up the gauntlet thrown down by Edward. The devastation of a large part of France, including the Ile de France itself, was humiliating and undermined his kingship. Moreover, his failure to bring the English to battle at the Seine and again at the Somme opened him up to charges of cowardice. Therefore, on August the 26th, 1346, as soon as he learned that Edward and the English forces were lingering at Crecy, he marched out at once at the head of the army. The French army of the Hundred Years' War has too often been described as a motley collection of chivalric warriors, fearless and skilled at arms, but individualistic, undisciplined, and with no conception of war other than the headlong charge on horseback. The great French medieval military historian Philippe Contamine has shown that the reality was rather different. During the 14th century, France's military system was evolving along roughly similar lines as England's. The traditional feudal host was no longer fit for purpose, and French military leaders were developing alternatives to it. Instead of relying on feudal obligations to raise their forces, the kings of France negotiated with their subjects to provide them with either well-trained and well-equipped troops or funds to support the war effort. Furthermore, even before the war with England, the principle had been established that the king would pay the soldiers who fought for him. With pay came royal inspections to ensure that troops were good quality as well as properly equipped and to maintain greater supervision over discipline. The French had even developed their own version of the English indenture, the Lettre de Retenue. 
as a contract negotiated by the king with an individual captain for the service of a unit of troops, the lettre de retenue was largely identical to the indenture. However, four factors meant that the French did not undergo an English-style military revolution. First, the nobility dominated French society in every way. There was therefore a very deep investment, military but also political, social, and cultural, in the nobility's preferred way of fighting as heavily armed, heavily armored mounted combatants. Second, France's vast wealth and huge population meant that the kingdom could raise very large numbers of gendarmes, or men-at-arms. With the adoption of the mixed retinue, English armies had become balanced forces of men-at-arms and archers. By contrast, in French armies, the man-at-arms remained the predominant soldier for the entire Hundred Years' War. Third, for long stretches of the war, the French were on the defensive against English invasions. In such circumstances, the French kings needed troops quickly. They could not mobilize armies using time-consuming contracting methods. Instead, they resorted to calling up the fighting nobles in the theater of war and in surrounding regions. Fourth, until the 1340s, the French military system was highly effective. The French had defeated the formidable Flemish infantry at Kassel in 1328 and had largely held their own in the opening years of the Hundred Years' War. Unlike the English, who had suffered humiliating defeats at the hands of the Scots, the French at first felt little need to change the way they made war. French men-at-arms were supplemented by contingents of foot soldiers. A large and growing number of French cities and towns were required by the king to maintain infantry companies. By the middle of the 14th century, the standard weapon of the communal infantry was the crossbow, a powerful weapon that shot bolts able to penetrate heavy armor. However, the crossbow was inferior to the longbow in range, rate of fire, and accuracy. The best infantrymen were not French at all, but mercenary Italian crossbowmen, particularly from Genoa. It is a persistent and durable myth that the French did not use the longbow. Even at the outset of the Hundred Years' War, a handful of communal infantry were armed with the longbow. After the English had demonstrated the devastating power of the weapon, the French kings made determined efforts to create a corps of longbowmen. These efforts failed for two reasons. First, French society lacked an equivalent to the yeoman, a small holding commoner with enough wealth to enjoy the leisure time needed for regular training with the bow. Thus, unlike the English, the French could never develop a deep reservoir of archers. And second, the French nobility might have worried that putting such a powerful weapon in the hands of the lower classes would threaten their social and political dominance. On the late afternoon of August 26, 1346, the French royal army approached the English at Crecy. Philip VI sent scouts to reconnoiter the enemy position. What the scouts saw was not encouraging. The English army was arrayed on top of a long ridge at the end of a valley called the Vallée de Clerc. Dismounted men-at-arms were lined up in three battles. Flanking them were long wings of archers. The English right flank rested on the village of Crecy, its left on the village of Wadicourt. The French scouts probably did not get close enough to see that the English archers had dug pits about a foot wide and a foot deep in front of their lines as an additional defense against cavalry. After the scouts returned with their report, 
many of the French commanders urged Philip VI to delay the battle until the next day, arguing that much of their army was still rushing to the battlefield. The king, however, would have none of it. The troops on hand already outnumbered the English by at least two to one, and considerably more in terms of men-at-arms. He therefore ordered an immediate attack. The first French troops to engage was a strong force of Genoese mercenary crossbowmen. As soon as the Italians were in range, the English longbowmen shot volleys of arrows into them. Proud professionals, the Genoese shot back. But the exchange of missiles quickly went against them. Not only were their crossbows badly outclassed in range, accuracy, and above all rate of fire by the longbows, but the Genoese, not anticipating a battle that day, had left behind in the French baggage train their pavises, the large body shields on which they depended for protection while reloading. In the words of Froissart, the English archers poured out their arrows on the Genoese so thickly and evenly that they fell like snow. When they felt those arrows piercing their arms, their heads, their faces, the Genoese, who had never met such archers before, were thrown into confusion. Many cut their bowstrings, and some threw down their crossbows. They began to fall back. What happened next was the most notorious incident of the Battle of Crecy. Seeing the Genoese archers retreating, the mounted men-at-arms of the leading French division became furious at what they thought was the Italians' cowardice, and charged through them, riding down any who could not scramble out of the way. This callous action, however, disorganized the French formation, which was then deluged by the English arrow storm. Men-at-arms were felled by arrows that punched through weak points of their mail and plate armor, helmet visors, and joint and limb coverings. But the main victims were the French war horses. Large, virtually unmissable targets for the longbowmen, and unprotected by metal armor, they were killed and wounded in droves. Jean Lebel noted that some would not go forwards, Others leapt into the air as if maddened. Others balked and bucked horribly. Others turned their rumps towards the enemy, regardless of their masters. The terrible effects of the arrows on the horses threw the charge into hopeless confusion. Nevertheless, enough Frenchmen reached the English men-at-arms to engage in hand-to-hand combat. After a furious bout of fighting, the French retreated, leaving heaps of fallen men and horses in front of the English battle line. More men and horses lay scattered on the slopes of the ridge and in the valley. For hours, the French attacked the English army. In all, they made at least 15 charges. These charges settled into a grim pattern. The Valet de Clerc funneled the French horsemen into the devastating crossfire of the English longbowmen. Men and horses were brought down all the way up the slopes of the Crecy Ridge. With their numbers badly depleted, their formation hopelessly disorganized, and their impetus completely spent, the French then smashed themselves against the unyielding wall of English men-at-arms. The flower of French chivalry was cut down. Perhaps the most notable death was that of John, King of Bohemia, a stalwart ally of Philip of France. Though old and blind, John led the second French attack, his horse's bridles tied to two of his men. He was found dead with his household knights all around him but many more French men-at-arms suffered a terrible death by suffocation. The English chronicler, Geoffrey Le Baker, noted that when they attacked the well-armed English, they were cut down with swords and spears, and many were crushed to death without a mark upon them in the middle of the French army because the press was so great. At last, long after sunset, 
At the third quarter of the night, according to Le Baker, the French army lost heart and retreated. King Philip had fought bravely, having two horses killed under him and being wounded in the face by an arrow. He had to be dragged away from the field by his bodyguards. Yet his generalship had been deplorable. Almost as soon as the battle began, he lost control of his army. The French attacks were launched piecemeal, spontaneously, and without organization or preparation. All had been cavalry charges, save for one assault on foot, led by a veteran commander who had fought against the English in Brittany. By contrast, Edward III had commanded with consummate skill. He had chosen an ideal battlefield and had deployed his army perfectly. He had managed his troops carefully so that they were ready to meet each French attack. The Battle of Crecy made the reputation of another great English soldier. Edward, the 16-year-old Prince of Wales, led the English vanguard. According to Jean Froissart, at one point the prince's division was so hard-pressed that Sir Thomas Norwich went back to the king to ask for reinforcements. King Edward famously replied, Sir Thomas, go back to him and those who sent you, and tell them from me that they are not to send to me for help, whatever happens, so long as my son is alive. Tell them that my orders are that they are to let the boy win his spurs, for I wish the day to be his, if God so wills it, and that he and his companions shall have the honor of it. The boy did win his spurs. Dubbed the Black Prince during the Tudor period, the younger Edward had become the finest commander on either side of the Hundred Years' War. Crecy was a catastrophe for France. At least 1,500 great nobles and knights had been killed, along with countless other humbler combatants. King Philip VI's reputation was badly tarnished, but more defeats soon followed. After Crecy, Edward III and the English army marched north and beleaguered the port of Calais. Powerfully fortified, Calais resisted stoutly. Edward III subjected it to an epic year-long siege. Up to 32,000 men and hundreds of ships were involved. The French made numerous attempts by land and sea to break the English grip on the city. However, with the memory of Crecy still fresh, they did not dare to risk another pitched battle. As the siege of Calais ground on, the French prevailed upon their Scottish and Breton allies to mount operations to distract the English. The Scots, under King David II, invaded northern England in the fall of 1346. The Scottish army met local English defensive forces at Neville's Cross near Durham. Once again, the English combination of dismounted men-at-arms and archers made short work of the Scottish Shiltrons. Among the heavy Scottish losses was King David, who was made prisoner. In Brittany, Charles of Blois, the French claimant to the duchy, besieged the important town of La Roche d'Arienne. On June 12, 1347, Edward III's lieutenant in Brittany, Sir Thomas Dagworth, launched a surprise attack. Though badly outnumbered, Dagworth handled his men-at-arms and archers, all fighting on foot, superbly, and routed the enemy. Charles of Blois was captured and joined the King of Scots in the Tower of London. Calais finally surrendered on August 4, 1347. According to a well-known story told by Jean Froissart, Edward III was furious at the obstinate resistance of Calais' people and intended to massacre the defenders of the city. When entreated to show mercy, 
the English king declared that six of the leading citizens must come to him, heads and feet bare, ropes around their necks, carrying the keys of the town and castle. These six would be executed, while the rest of the people would be spared. Eustace de Saint-Pierre, the wealthiest citizen of Calais, volunteered to be sacrificed. Moved by his example, five others soon followed. When the six presented themselves before Edward III, all the lords of England begged him to spare them. The king, however, refused. At last, Edward's queen, Philippa of Hainaut, who was heavily pregnant, interceded. She managed to change her husband's mind, and the six were spared. In 1884, the city of Calais commissioned Auguste Rodin to create a sculpture commemorating this incident. Rodin completed his monumental Bourgeois de Calais in 1889. The work stands outside the city hall of Calais, while casts can be found in Paris, New York, London, and Tokyo. For Edward III, the conquest of Calais was a striking achievement with far-reaching consequences. Calais and its hinterland, the Pale, formed another English enclave in France. It gave the English armies an invaluable gateway into northern France, one not dependent on fickle Flemish friends. Blessed with an excellent harbour, Calais also granted the English naval command of the Narrows of the Channel. Crecy, Neville's Cross, La Roche d'Arien, Calais, 1346-1347, was an annus mirabilis of English arms. But the Hundred Years' War was then brought to a halt by an even greater catastrophe. In 1347, the bubonic plague, the Black Death, had arrived in Italy, born from Constantinople by Genoese galleys. The next year, it swept over the Alps and spread throughout France, then vaulted over the Channel. The pandemic killed a third to a half of the populations of France and England. Given the awesome scale of this calamity, I think it's astounding that the war would resume at all. Yet resume it did. By 1350, the Black Death was beginning to recede in intensity. English and French negotiators met at Guine, near Calais, to attempt once again to negotiate a peace treaty. The negotiations foundered on the now-familiar rocks of the English claim to the French throne and the French refusal to surrender feudal rights over the English domains. King Philip VI of France died in 1350. Although he had begun his reign well, royal authority and French military power had been badly weakened by the disasters at its end. His successor, John II, immediately threw himself into restoring both. He passed reforms aiming to put the French army on a better organizational and disciplinary footing. On the battlefield, French commanders strove to find solutions to the English tactical system of dismounted men-at-arms and archers fighting on the defensive. French responses were shaped by the character of their army heavy on men-at-arms, and lacking the firepower to match English longbowmen. In 1351, at Taibourg, in the Saint-Ange, Guy Denel, Marshal of France, chose to dismount and mass together most of his men-at-arms. Denel was clearly recognizing that war horses were the part of a French force most vulnerable to arrows. Yet he kept two smaller bodies of mounted men-at-arms on the flanks of his main battle, intending to use them to sweep away the English archers. Donnell's plan failed, and the French were defeated, most likely because the mounted wings were too weak and were driven off by the longbowmen. A few months later, at Ardres, near Calais, 
the French commander, the Lord of Beaujeu, decided to dismount all his men-at-arms. Although Beaujeu himself was killed, his men smashed through the English forces, killing many and capturing most of the rest, including William Bennett, the English captain of Calais. In 1352, Guidenel was involved in another battle at Moron in Brittany. This time, he charged one large unit of 700 mounted men-at-arms at one wing of English archers. The charge succeeded in routing the archers and driving them off the field. But the English centre and the other wing managed to defeat the French in hand-to-hand combat, in the process killing Denel. After the battle, the English commander, Walter Bentley, had 30 longbowmen beheaded for retreating. Although the French record in these minor battles was decidedly mixed, it did demonstrate that, contrary to popular belief, they were not inflexibly bound to traditional methods. Rather, these battles showed, as Matthew Bennett points out, the French were thinking tactically, that they were experimenting, and that these experiments were carried out all over France. John II's efforts to rebuild royal authority and military strength soon ran afoul of the perennial problem of French disunity. A powerful and influential figure in the French royal court was Charles of Navarre. Scion of a branch of the Capetian family, Charles could make a claim on the French throne. Ruler of the Kingdom of Navarre in the Pyrenees, he had also inherited vast lands in Normandy. Hugely ambitious and completely lacking any political scruples, he would spend most of his life playing off the French and English kings against each other in order to advance his own interests. In the 16th century, he would receive the nickname the Bad. In 1354, Charles of Navarre arranged the assassination of his main rival at the French court, the Marshal of France, Charles de la Cerda. In order to escape the royal wrath, Charles of Navarre then allied with King Edward III of England and agreed to a treaty to divide France between them. To head off civil war, John II came to terms with Charles, awarding him even more lands in Normandy in exchange for giving up his English alliance. But instead of being reconciled, Charles the Bad was soon plotting again with Edward III against the King of France. While this intrigue was unfolding, the main theatre of action in the Hundred Years' War was shifting back to Aquitaine. Fighting in the English-ruled duchy had a different character than in the other theatres. No major battles were fought in Aquitaine until the very last of the whole conflict, Castillon in 1453. Instead, Aquitaine was the scene of raids, skirmishes, and above all sieges. Malcolm Vale, one of the leading authorities in English on Aquitaine, states that there were already over 1,000 castles and forts in the duchy at the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. Furthermore, the principal combatants on the English side were the warlike Gascon nobles. Although distinct from the English in language and culture, the Gascon were nevertheless fiercely loyal to the Plantagenet kings. But the Gascon nobles also mingled their participation in the public war between the kings of France and England with pursuit of their own private feuds. The greatest of these feuds was between the houses of Armagnac and Foix. As we'll see, as we'll see, this feud would help alter the course of the Hundred Years' War at a crucial juncture. In 1355, Edward III dispatched his eldest son, Edward the Black Prince, to take command in Aquitaine. In the decades since he had won his spurs at Crecy, the Black Prince had shown himself to be a gifted and dynamic military commander. 
It was also regarded in both England and France as the epitome of chivalry and the greatest knight of the age. When he arrived in Bordeaux, capital of Aquitaine, with an army of 2,200 English men-at-arms and archers, he was greeted with jubilation by the Gascon nobles. According to several chroniclers, they were looking forward to much booty. The Black Prince did not disappoint them. He launched a chevauchée south and east through the lands of the Count of Armagnac and into Languedoc, almost reaching the Mediterranean near Narbonne. The raid took enormous loot. It also devastated areas of France previously untouched by war. And because French forces did little to stop it, the chevauchée also exposed the King of France's impotence and inability to protect his own people. The next year, the incessant intrigues of Charles the Bad at last forced King John's hand. The king had Charles arrested and ordered the execution of four of his closest followers. In response, Charles the Bad's brothers took up arms in rebellion. A full-fledged civil war erupted in Normandy and much of western France. Even worse, Charles' supporters, the so-called Navarrese faction, turned to the King of England for support. Edward now began calling himself Duke of Normandy. More tangibly, he made plans for an ambitious French campaign. Although renewed war in Scotland prevented him from going to France in person, Edward planned a two-pronged attack. One prong consisted of a force under one of Edward's most trusted commanders, Henry de Grossmont, the Duke of Lancaster, landing in Normandy to aid the Navarrese. The other prong comprised the Black Prince leading a chevauchée north from Aquitaine to link up with Lancaster at the Loire River. In August 1356, the Black Prince marched out from Aquitaine with an army of 6,000 troops, two-thirds of whom were Gascon. They pillaged and burned their way up the west coast of France, amassing an immense amount of plunder. When the English and Gascon force reached the Loire, the Black Prince discovered that King John was in the field with a powerful army and had already forced Lancaster to retreat to Normandy. The Prince decided to turn back and return to Aquitaine. The French king set off in pursuit. On September the 18th, 1356, the French army caught up to the English and Gascon as they were trying to get their booty-laden wagons over the Moisson River near the forest of Nouaillet, some 12 kilometers south of Poitiers. The Black Prince went to ground in a strong defensive position, a low hill behind a hedge and marshes. He then negotiated with the French for a truce and safe conduct back to Aquitaine. King John rejected the English terms. The next day, September the 19th, the two armies prepared to fight. Did the Black Prince want a battle? His retreat from the Loire and his negotiations to be allowed to withdraw to Aquitaine have convinced most historians that he did not, and that he only fought because he had been cornered by the French. Yet Clifford Rogers argues that this was another example of the use of the chevauchée to provoke a battle on English terms. Just like his father at Crecy, the Black Prince baited the French until he found an ideal battlefield. He then used the truce to further strengthen his position. His army was a highly skilled, cohesive, confident force. The troops, both English and Gascon, were hardened veterans. Their English commanders had fought at Crecy. There is no doubt that King John wanted a battle. The Black Prince's chevauchées had badly hurt his royal authority. Moreover, the French monarch could be confident of victory. His army badly outnumbered the English and Gascon. 
the French comprised 12,000 men-at-arms, 2,000 crossbowmen, and 2,000 other infantry. They thus outnumbered their enemies by better than two to one. Unlike at Crecy, the French were well-rested and fully deployed for battle. And not least, King John and his commanders were convinced that after their experiments during the battles of the early 1350s, they now knew how to beat the English tactical system. They dismounted their men-at-arms, except for two divisions of the most heavily armoured men mounted on the best horses in the army. The French plan was to use the horsemen to sweep away the enemy archers, then smash the rest of the English army with massive assaults on foot. The Battle of Poitiers began with the French unleashing their cavalry in a furious charge aimed at the English longbowmen, who were deployed as usual on the flanks of their dismounted men-at-arms. Because of the thick hedge and the maze of marshes, the French could only approach the English line at two points. The English archers managed to hit the densely packed horsemen from in front and the sides, an enfilade in military terms, and drove them away with heavy losses. The leading French foot division, commanded by King John's heir, the Dauphin Charles, immediately moved into the attack. As they advanced, they were hit by a hail of arrows, causing heavy losses, disrupting their order, and damaging their morale. The French at last struck the English men-at-arms. A ferocious melee ensued but the English and Gascon eventually prevailed. The next French division was just beginning to move forward when disaster struck. Its commander, the Duke of Orléans, lost his nerve and fled the field, taking half of his men with him. The rest made a half-hearted attack before retreating. Having repelled three French attacks, the English and Gascon were now exhausted. The archers had shot off most of their arrows. But the last French division, commanded by King John himself, now took its turn. It was the largest of the French units and still mostly fresh. As it lumbered forward, the Black Prince made two daring decisions. First, he ordered Jean de Grailly, the Capitale de Bouche, the leading Gascon commander, to take a force of 60 mounted men-at-arms and a 100 archers around the French flank and strike the King's division from behind. Second, with a shout of, Advance banners, he commanded the rest of his troops to charge the French. The two armies collided, and the fighting was the fiercest of the entire day. The English archers shot their remaining arrows at close range, then waded into hand-to-hand combat. The battle was balanced on a knife edge when the Capitale de Bouche appeared behind the French. His archers sent volley after volley into the unprotected backs of the enemy. Then, with a great shout, the Capitale's mounted men charged. French morale broke, and their troops began fleeing. King John and a knot of faithful men fought to the end. The king's companions were all slain, including Sir Geoffrey de Charny, the most famous French knight, the author of the Book of Chivalry, and the bearer of the royal banner, the Oriflamme. King John himself was captured, as was his son Philip, who, too young to fight, had nevertheless spent the entire combat at his father's side, calling out, Watch out there, sire, or to the right whenever he saw an attacker. Poitiers was an even more shattering defeat for the French than Crecy. Once again, French losses were extremely heavy. 2,500 noble men-at-arms had been killed, along with uncounted other lesser troops. The prisoners included the Archbishop of Sens, who had fought in armor, 17 counts or viscounts, 22 bannerets, and over 1,900 other men-at-arms. But the most significant loss was of course King John himself. With the king confined to the Tower of London, 
the reins of power had to be taken up by the 18-year-old Dauphin Charles. France imploded. The Navarrese faction demanded the release of Charles the Bad. The civil war that had begun in Normandy spread eastward into the heartlands of France. In 1357, the burghers of Paris rebelled, led by Etienne Marcel, the prévôt de marchand or mayor of the city, and supported by the Navarrese. The next year, rebellions spread into the countryside with a massive peasant uprising called the Jacquerie. To relieve some of the strain, the Dauphin released Charles the Bad. Soon he was plotting again with the English to partition France. Meanwhile, Edward III was negotiating with the captive John II for his release and a peace treaty. While these discussions went on, a truce existed between the two kingdoms. But to pile on the pressure on the French, the English sponsored much informal warfare by freebooting mercenaries, the infamous Routier. One of the leading Routier captains, Sir Robert Knowles, conducted raids into the Auvergne, a region of central France formerly little touched by war. In 1359, Edward decided to mount an invasion in order to push the French into making peace. He landed at Calais on October the 28th with an army of 10,000 men-at-arms and mounted archers. What followed was the longest chevauchée of the war. During it, the English army threatened Reims, traditional crowning place of the French kings, and Paris. At last, on May 8, 1360, at Bretigny, near Chartres, a peace treaty was concluded. Edward received full sovereignty over Calais, Ponthieu, Poitou, and an enlarged Aquitaine. He also accepted a ransom of three million gold coins for King John II. In return, he agreed to refrain from calling himself King of France. For England and its monarch, the so-called Great Peace of Bretigny was a triumph. In the words of Anne Curry, Edward had surely won this war, for he had gained what his predecessors could only have dreamed of, sovereign rule of half of France. France's agonies did not end with the Great Peace of Bretigny. Although open hostilities between the two great kingdoms largely ceased, the Breton War of Succession and the Civil War against the Navarrese continued. Even worse, the Routier, the freebooting mercenary soldiers, now became a truly terrifying force of disorder and violence. The truce between England and France after the Battle of Poitiers, followed by the Bretigny Treaty, had demobilized thousands of hardened English, Gascon, French, and Breton veterans. War was all they knew, and they refused to return to civilian lives of boredom and poverty. They banded together into so-called free companies, sometimes consisting of thousands of men, and led by such colorful figures as Sir Robert Knowles, an English soldier who rose from common obscurity to the nobility, and Arnaud de Servol, known as the Archpriest, a defrocked French clergyman. The free companies wandered all over France, seeking adventure, meeting out violence, and pillaging for profit. Communities paid enormous ransoms to buy them off. In March 1359, Auxerre in Burgundy handed over 40,000 gold coins to avoid plunder by the free company of Sir Robert Knowles. In the words of Christopher Allman, the Kingdom of France was becoming the playground of Europe's footloose soldiers. For many French civilians, the war seemed not to have ended at all. But the Routier companies were a threat even to the French monarchy. On April 6, 1362, 
the company of the Tardvenu defeated the French royal army at Brine in the Rhone Valley. The Routiers even exported their violence beyond France. In 1361, Sir John Hawkwood, the son of an Essex tanner, led the White Company into Italy. Thanks to his mastery of the English tactical system of dismounted men-at-arms and long bowmen, Hawkwood became one of the most feared mercenary captains, or condottieri, in Italy. He ended his days as the Captain General of Florence. His funerary monument, painted by Uccello, graces Florence's Duomo. Yet, amidst all this gloom, there were glimmers of French revival. In order to pay his enormous ransom, King John II had secured a suite of taxes, notably sales dues on a range of basic commodities and a tax on salt. Moreover, unlike in England, where the kings had been forced to acknowledge Parliament's power of the purse, the French kings continued to impose and collect these taxes without the consent of their subjects. A secure revenue base to support the French war effort had been created. Just as important were changes in both political and military leadership. In 1364, King John II died. Although amiable, chivalrous, and brave, he had fought on foot with a battle axe at Poitiers until forced to surrender. John had proved unable to master the manifold political and military crises he faced. His successor, Charles V, would become one of the greatest of all French medieval kings, earning the epithet Le Sage, or the Wise. The outstanding French soldier of the Hundred Years' War also now appeared. Bertrand du Guesclin was a Breton knight who began his career as a routier captain before entering the service of the French crown. As a result of his bravery and tactical acumen, he rose to become Charles V's chief commander. On May 16, 1364, du Guesclin and the royal army engaged the Navarrese forces of Charles the Bad at Coquerel, east of Paris. The Navarrese included a strong contingent of English free companies, and their army was commanded by Jean de Grilly, capital de Bouche, the same Gascon nobleman whom we last saw leading the decisive charge at Poitiers. De Grilly sought to fight in the English defensive style. Du Guesclin employed a feigned retreat to lure the Navarrese and English out of their defensive positions, then cut them to pieces with a sudden flank attack. Coquerel was a significant victory for the French monarchy. Charles the Bad reconciled with the king. By the Treaty of Pamplona, he agreed to lay down his arms in exchange for the preservation of his main Norman lands. Charles proved incorrigible and soon resumed plotting and intriguing, but he never again posed a serious military threat. Bertrand du Guesclin was a superb general, but he must also be one of the most captured generals in military history. In his next battle, at Ore, on September 29, 1364, Duguesclin led the troops of Charles of Blois, the French claimant to the Duchy of Brittany, against the army of the English-backed Montfort claimant. The forces of Blois were badly defeated. Charles himself was killed, and Duguesclin was taken prisoner. Ore compelled Charles the Wise to seek a settlement in Brittany. He recognized the Montfort claimant as Duke John IV, and granted him so much autonomy that Brittany became effectively independent from the Kingdom of France. In particular, in particular, the English were permitted to keep the port of Brest and several other key strongholds in the duchy. These terms were a steep price to pay for the French king, but they ended the Breton War of Succession. 
At last, free of civil wars, Charles the Wise was then handed an opportunity to deal with the Routier. In Castile, the most powerful of the five kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula, a vicious struggle for power was unfolding. The brutal behavior of King Peter, his sobriquet, even among many of his own subjects, was the cruel, had alienated many Castilian nobles and commoners. The disaffected had rallied around Peter's illegitimate half-brother, Count Henry of Trastamara, who appealed for help to the King of France. Charles V agreed. He calculated that a friendly Castile would make a valuable ally. This issue was especially pressing because King Peter had been drawn closer to the English, and in particular to the Black Prince. More importantly, Charles saw a chance to rid France of the Routier by hiring them, then dispatching them over the Pyrenees to fight in Spain. He was joined by the Pope, whose seat at Avignon had frequently been menaced by the free companies. In January 1366, 10,000 Routiers invaded Castile. To lead the army, Charles the Wise had ransomed Bertrand du Gaclin from English captivity. But so many of the free companies were English and Gascon that Du Gaclin had to share command with an English routier captain, Sir Hugh Calvary. Ironically, Calvary had played a major role at Ore, the battle in which Du Gaclin had been captured. The routier stormed through Castile, overrunning the kingdom in a matter of weeks. The Castilians deserted Peter the Cruel. Unable to mount effective resistance, Peter fled Spain. Henry of Trastamara replaced him as King of Castile. Peter the Cruel took refuge in Aquitaine. The Black Prince had been ruling the duchy as his own domain since 1362. He and his closest advisors regarded developments in Spain with dismay. A Castile allied with France would represent a serious threat on the southern frontier of Aquitaine. Moreover, the Castilian galley fleet was the finest in Europe and could alter the balance of power in the Atlantic. There was one final consideration. The prince had now spent most of a decade doing the dull work of governing. He was itching to get back to the battlefield. He therefore decided to invade Castile and restore King Peter to his throne. In February 1367, the Black Prince and an army of English and Gascon veterans crossed the Pyrenees into Castile. His army was swelled by the free companies of Hugh Calvary, who immediately deserted Henry of Trastamara. The Castilians, though, still had Bertrand du Guesclin and his strong French and Breton contingent. Du Guesclin urged Henry of Trastamara to avoid a pitched battle with the Black Prince and instead harry the English army until lack of supplies forced it to withdraw. Henry at first took this advice, but eventually feared that his inaction would be interpreted as cowardice and provoke many Castilians to defect to Peter the Cruel. He decided to give battle. The two armies met near the town of Nahara on April 3, 1367. The sources are unclear and imprecise about numbers. Modern estimates give each side between 6,000 and 8,000 men. The Black Prince's army was drawn up in four divisions, a vanguard, left wing, right wing, and a reserve under the prince himself. Each division was deployed in the now standard English fashion, dismounted men-at-arms flanked by archers. The Castilian army was also in four divisions. Bertrand du Guesclin and his dismounted French men-at-arms were the vanguard. The Castilian left 
and right wings consisted mainly of jinetes, the javelin-armed light cavalry that were mainstays of Iberian warfare. Perhaps think of them as medieval versions of Hannibal's Numidians. The Castilian reserve was commanded by King Henry and comprised mounted Castilian men-at-arms backed up by large numbers of infantry levies. Nahara was the rare battle where the English took the offensive. The battle began with a clash of the vanguards. Soon the experienced French and English men-at-arms were locked in ferocious hand-to-hand combat. The Castilian jinetes tried to attack the English vanguard's long bowmen, but the archers shot so effectively against the lightly armored horsemen that they were driven from the field. The English wing divisions then attacked Duguesclin's troops. The French were overwhelmed and Duguesclin himself was captured. The English and Gascon then turned on the enemy reserve division. King Henry personally led a charge of his mounted men-at-arms. The longbowmen shot it to pieces. The Black Prince then launched an all-out assault and the last Castilian division disintegrated. In the chaotic rout, King Henry managed to escape. Nahara was the crowning achievement of the Black Prince's brilliant military career. It demonstrated that the English tactical system was now so formidable that it could be effectively employed in the attack. But the fruits of victory soon turned bitter. Once restored to his throne, Peter the Cruel turned on his allies. As the price of the Black Prince's intervention, he had promised to pay the English and Gascon troops. Following a summer of increasingly angry bickering, the Black Prince realized that Peter was reneging on his promise. The prince then took his army back over the Pyrenees to Aquitaine. In the meantime, Charles the Wise had been helping Henry of Trastamara rebuild his army. In the autumn of 1367, Henry returned to Castile. Without the help of the Black Prince's veterans and their longbows, Peter the Cruel was soon in serious difficulties. His fate was sealed when King Charles of France ransomed Bertrand du Guesclin and sent him back to Spain. On March 14, 1369, Duguesclin ambushed Peter's army and destroyed it at the Battle of Montiel. Peter himself was captured, then personally stabbed to death by Henry of Trastamara. Once back on his throne, King Henry never forgot who put him there. Castile would be France's faithful ally until the late 15th century. But the Castilian campaign and Nahara had even more significant consequences for the Hundred Years' War. In fact, they would lead to a major turning point. The Black Prince's sojourn in the hot and insalubrious climate of Spain wrecked his health. He would never again lead an army in battle. Even more seriously, because of Peter the Cruel's refusal to pay his troops, he had massive debts to his retainers and to several routier captains. In desperate need for hard cash, the prince resorted to imposing a new tax on his Gascon subjects. This new tax proved hugely unpopular in Aquitaine. The tax was particularly hated by the powerful noble houses of Armagnac and Albre. In 1362, the Armagnacs and Albres had been badly defeated by their archenemy, the House of Bois, at the Battle of Launac. The Armagnacs and Albres had paid enormous ransoms for their captured leaders. Already in financial difficulties and now faced by the Black Prince's new tax, the two houses appealed for relief to their liege sovereign, King Edward III. The English king turned them down. 
the Armagnacs, and Albrays then appealed to King Charles V of France. Charles the Wise realized that accepting the appeal of the nobles of Aquitaine would be a casus belli, a cause for war with England. He carefully marshaled his forces and gathered his resources. To buy himself and his kingdom more time to prepare, he asked Europe's leading legal scholars if he had the right to hear the nobles' appeal. In December 1368, they confirmed that he did. In retaliation, Edward III resumed using the title King of France. In November 1369, Charles declared he was confiscating Aquitaine. The Hundred Years' War resumed. The nature and course of the conflict during the 1370s was to be very different from the first decade of the Hundred Years' War, and its results more dramatic. Unlike during the age of Crecy and Poitiers, the French were united under Charles the Wise. Moreover, a wave of reforms had transformed the French military machine. What Philippe Contamine calls the Army of the Reconquest was far better organized, better paid, more disciplined, and more effective than the hosts of King Philip VI and John II. Charles the Wise and his commanders used the robust and more regular revenues from improved taxation to create and maintain permanent companies of men-at-arms and crossbowmen. This standing army was small, 2,400 men-at-arms, 600 mounted crossbowmen, and 400 crossbowmen on foot. However, it formed an elite corps that was then built out by contingents supplied by the French nobility and the towns. Charles the Wise placed the new model French army under the command of Bertrand du Guesclin, whom he appointed Constable of France in 1370. The constable then formulated and put into action a new strategy. He avoided confronting English armies in pitched battle. Instead, he descended on the overextended frontiers of the enlarged English possessions in France with small but fast-moving forces. The French relied on raids, sieges, and the encouragement of defections among the Gascon nobility to reconquer territory. The English responded to the French offensives by resorting to their tried-and-true technique of the chevauchée. Throughout the 1370s, the English launched regular large-scale raids from Calais that crossed northern France and ended in either Brittany or Gascony. The English forces involved were considerable. Some 30,000 troops were raised for expeditionary armies between 1369 and 1380. The English armies were well-disciplined, well-organized, well-paid, and composed of doughty veterans. But they achieved little against the French. Under Du Guesclin, the French strenuously avoided battle, even in the face of the worst English provocations. Moreover, Du Guesclin did his best to minimize the devastation caused by chevauchées by surrounding the marauding English armies with mobile French forces that countered the enemy raiding parties. Du Guesclin's conduct of this phase of the war was highly reminiscent of, and could even have been inspired by, the strategy of the Roman consul Fabius Maximus in the face of Hannibal's invincible Carthaginian army. The English war effort was further hampered by the disappearance of the generation of talented commanders of the glorious first phase of the Hundred Years' War. The Black Prince, his health ruined, withdrew from Aquitaine in 1371. He died five years later. 
King Edward III himself was in his dotage. He followed his oldest son to the grave in 1377. After 1380, the English ceased sending large-scale expeditionary armies to France. The financial cost was simply too high for the meager results achieved. By then, the French campaigns had reduced the English possessions to the Calais Pale and a fragment of Aquitaine largely amounting to a coastal strip stretching from Bordeaux to Bayonne. Yet the French were now unable to fight to final victory. Their successful war effort had extracted an enormous financial and social toll. Furthermore, the architects of the Reconquest, Bertrand du Guesclin and Charles the Wise, both died in 1380. The two exhausted kingdoms began negotiating for peace. In 1396, they agreed to a 28-year truce. The truce left unresolved the fundamental issues of English-held lands in France and the Plantagenet claim to the French throne. Nevertheless, it could have become a permanent peace if two developments had not intervened. First, a renewal of bitter French internal divisions which escalated to full-blown civil war. Second, the ascension to the throne of England's last and greatest warrior king, Henry V. After 1396, France and England remained locked in a cold war. French forces continued to make incursions into Aquitaine, gaining territory in Saint-Onge, the Agenais, and Perigord. The French continued to support the Scots and sent aid to the Welsh prince Owain Glendour, who began an uprising against the English in 1400. French soldiers and military advisers might even have been active in Wales and the west of England. For their part, the English raided the coasts of Normandy and sponsored piracy in the Channel. Despite this continuing low-grade conflict, the French and English could have, in time, reached a lasting diplomatic settlement. But after 1392, the Valois monarchy of France was plunged into a serious and prolonged crisis. In that year, for the first time, King Charles VI fell into madness. For the rest of his life, he would oscillate between periods of lucidity and bouts of insanity. Contemporary chronicles, diaries, letters, and histories record that he suffered from a wide range of symptoms. He flew into wild rages during which he could commit acts of horrific violence. In 1392, he slaughtered four of his own household knights. At other times, he plunged into complete lassitude, such as in 1405, when he refused to bathe and change his clothes for five months. Often, he was unable to recognize those closest to him, including his wife and children. But perhaps the most famous manifestation of Charles VI's madness was the so-called glass delusion. The French king became convinced that his body was made of glass, and he would shatter with the least movement or disturbance. He then remained immobilized under thick blankets. If he had to move, he only did so in a special costume reinforced with iron ribs. Diagnosing historical illnesses is notoriously difficult because of the unreliability of the source material. Historians' best guess is that Charles VI suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. As an anointed king, Charles VI could not be deposed. Instead, his closest relatives rushed to take control of the French state. The result was an increasingly fierce struggle for power among various Valois princes and dukes. At first, 
the royal court and government were controlled by Charles VI's brother, Louis, Duke of Orléans. Both avaricious and libertine, one courtier remarked, Monsieur, the Duke of Orléans, is young and likes playing dice and whoring. Louis soon drew the ire and jealousy of John, Duke of Burgundy, who was called the Fearless. As the king's cousin, John the Fearless was a senior member of the royal dynasty. He was also the ruler of a great appanage that included the rich and populous province of Burgundy, as well as Flanders and many other territories in the Low Countries and along the Rhine. In 1407, John the Fearless had Louis of Orléans murdered. The Duke of Burgundy then seized control of the royal government. But Louis's son, Charles, although just 13 years old at the time, swore vengeance. In 1410, Charles of Orléans, the Dukes of Berry and Brittany, and the Counts of Alençon, Clermont, and Armagnac formed the League of Gien against Burgundy. Charles also married Armagnac's daughter, thereby giving rise to his faction commonly being called the Armagnacs. A full-blown civil war broke out between the Burgundians and the Armagnacs. England was soon drawn into this civil war. The King of England was Henry IV. Both French factions approached him for military assistance. First off the mark were the Burgundians. In 1411, an English force of 800 men-at-arms and 2,000 archers arrived in France and helped John the Fearless take control of Paris. The next year, the Armagnacs approached Henry IV with an offer no English king could refuse, a recognition that Aquitaine was rightfully English the cession of 20 important towns and castles, and the future transfer to England of other important lands, most notably Poitou. By the Treaty of Bourges of May 1412, Henry IV agreed to send 4,000 troops to France under the command of his second son, Thomas, Duke of Clarence. Yet by the time Clarence arrived in France, the Burgundians at Armagnacs had made peace. Facing unified French opposition, Clarence allowed himself to be bought off and withdrew back to England. In March 1413, Henry IV died. He was succeeded by his eldest son, who became Henry V. Aged 26, the new king was in his prime and unusually well prepared for his role. His father had been chronically ill throughout his reign, which meant that Henry had been an active participant and often the dominant voice in the councils of state. Henry also had extensive experience of warfare. He had played a leading part in the war against the Welsh rebel prince Owen Glendour. In 1403, aged 16, Henry had fought in his first battle, a Shrewsbury against the Percys, the most powerful noble family in northern England who had joined forces with Glendour. While leading his troops in the thick of the fighting, Henry had been struck full in the face by an arrow. The royal surgeon, a pardoned counterfeiter named John Bradmore succeeded in extracting the arrow after an operation lasting many hours and done without anesthesia. The horrendous scarring caused by such a wound may be the reason why the only surviving portrait of Henry V portrays him in profile rather than in the three-quarters position favored by other medieval English kings. Finally, one of Henry's most striking qualities was his deep and devout religiosity, which was conspicuous and noteworthy even in an age of fervent faith. From the outset of his reign, 
Henry V was determined to achieve all the goals in France his predecessors had fought for. He took his role as king extremely seriously and wanted his reign to represent a new beginning at home as well as abroad. In addition to these personal ambitions, Henry had practical political reasons to act aggressively toward France. His father had come to the throne by overthrowing King Richard II in a military coup in 1399. In doing so, he had replaced the main line of the Plantagenets with a new dynasty, the Lancastrians. The taint of usurpation still hung over Henry V. Success in France would dispel this taint and buttress his legitimacy. There were also doubts in certain quarters about Henry's suitability as king. In 1411 and 1412, he had clashed bitterly with his father over which side to support in the French Civil Wars and had fallen out of favor as a result. Some in England remained skeptical about his policies, yet it was the French who were the most dubious about Henry's kingship. Shakespeare has popularized the story that the Dauphin, the French king's heir, insulted Henry by sending him a gift of tennis balls. This story is a myth created by English propaganda. However, there is ample evidence that the French publicly dismissed Henry as a lightweight. Henry was eager to prove his English and French critics wrong. Perhaps most importantly, Henry saw great opportunities in the continuing crisis in France. In the summer of 1413, the fragile peace between the Armagnacs and Burgundians had broken down. The two sides were again fighting openly. The English king first tried diplomacy. In May 1414, he dispatched a high-ranking embassy to the Armagnacs, who were then in the ascendancy in Paris and controlled King Charles VI. The ambassadors presented expansive demands the restoration and full sovereignty of all the lands awarded to England by the great peace of Bretigny, the addition of Normandy, Touraine, Maine, and Anjou, the feudal homage of Flanders and Brittany, and the hand in marriage of Catherine, daughter of the French king. The Armagnacs countered with offers to restore the Bretigny lands and to permit Princess Catherine to marry Henry V. The ambassadors rejected these terms and returned to England empty-handed. But Henry was double-dealing. At the same time, as his embassy was negotiating with the Armagnacs, an envoy was in talks with the Duke of Burgundy about an alliance. Initially receptive, the Duke ultimately did not pursue this arrangement. In February 1415, Henry V sent a second English embassy to France. Admitted into Paris in March, the ambassadors only demanded a return to the Bretigny terms. However, since the first English embassy, the Armagnac and Burgundian factions had again made peace. The French rejected the English demand outright. In fact, the English king was no longer serious about a diplomatic settlement. Henry V calculated that with the French united and feeling confident, they would be in no mood at all to bargain. The embassy was intended to make the English look like the moderate party and the French as unreasonable. Henry was then able to go to war, claiming he was seeking justice and the restoration of his rights. The perspective from Paris was altogether different. As Anne Curry points out, the French posed no threat to England, this was simply an act of aggression. The well-oiled English war machine was already in motion. Henry V summoned Parliament in November 1414. The royal chancellor, 
Henry Beaufort, Bishop of Winchester, then explained to the assembly how our most sovereign lord the king desires especially that good and wise action should be taken against his enemies outside the realm, and that he will strive for the recovery of the inheritance and right of his crown outside the realm, which has for a long time been withheld and wrongfully kept since the time of his progenitors, kings of England, in accordance with the authorities who wish that unto death shalt thou strive for justice. Parliament duly voted the king a large subsidy to wage war. With funds in hand, Henry V began intensive discussions with his nobles, knights, and other prominent members of the English military community, in other words his captains, about the retinues they could raise for his army. On April 29, 1415, the indentures of war were sealed. At least 320 captains contracted with the king. The retinues varied tremendously in size from the 960 troops of the king's eldest brother, Thomas Duke of Clarence, to a single man-at-arms serving with a few archers. A striking feature of nearly all the retinues was that they had a ratio of three archers to one man-at-arms. Clarence's retinue, for instance, had 720 archers and 240 men-at-arms. This represented a significant shift from the first phases of the Hundred Years' War, when retinues had a ratio of one man-at-arms to one archer. Increasing the number of archers was a way to stretch the available funds to build the largest possible army. A non-titled or ordinary man-at-arms was paid one shilling per day, an archer sixpence. Archers were all-round soldiers, useful in all tactical situations, and because most were mounted, just as mobile on campaign as men-at-arms. In fact, Henry V made a great effort to maximize his archer arm. In addition to the archers in the retinues, he raised special companies from the shires of his kingdom that produced the finest longbowmen, Cheshire, Lancashire, and South Wales. Because North Wales remained rebellious, the king did not raise any troops there. All in all, Henry's army consisted of over 12,000 soldiers. During the entire Hundred Years' War, it was second in size only to Edward III's army for the 1346 Crecy campaign. Henry V's achievement was especially impressive given that the population of England in 1415 was only half that of 1346, largely because of the Black Death. That this army was a national force brought together to achieve a common purpose was symbolized by Henry's requirement for all troops to wear the Red Cross of St. George on their front and back. This grand army was extraordinarily expensive. In addition, King Henry had to mobilize a powerful siege train as well as a large fleet to transport his forces to France. Parliament's subsidy was quickly spent as were loans advanced by London. Henry V resorted to giving his own jewels to his captains as security for future payments of wages. On August 13, 1415, 1,500 English ships, a fleet 12 times the size of the Spanish Armada, appeared at the mouth of the River Seine. Strict orders were issued that no one was to land before the king. The next day, Henry V came ashore. He instantly fell to his knees and prayed to God to give him justice against his enemies. For the first time in fifty years, an English king had come in person to France to make war. From its beachhead at the mouth of the Seine, the English army had only a short distance to march to its first target, Harfleur. Today, 
largely swallowed up by the urban conurbation of Le Havre, Harfleur in 1415 was one of France's most important ports. It was a base for the French galley fleet, and earlier in the century, the Duke of Orléans had chosen it as the embarkation point for a possible invasion of England. King Henry's own plan was to take Harfleur and convert it into a secure English foothold in Normandy. He would then make further conquests in the region with the goal of pressuring the French leadership into conceding to him at least the terms of the Great Peace of Bretigny. But Harfleur was by no means an easy target. The French had been caught flat-footed by the King of England's landing at the estuary of the Seine. With the entire coast between Bayonne and Flanders to defend, King Charles VI's commanders had had to spread their available forces thinly. Harfleur itself, though, had imposing state-of-the-art fortifications. The city's walls and towers, barbicans and gates, were defended by a strong garrison of men-at-arms and crossbowmen, as well as by the citizens of Harfleur themselves. Furthermore, the citizens had flooded the surrounding countryside as soon as they had learned of the English king's approach. The English first blockaded Harfleur by land and sea. Then they opened a hugely destructive bombardment of the city. They employed trebuchets, catapults, and all the usual medieval siege engines. Yet their most effective weapons by far were cannons. Gunpowder artillery had been known since the earliest days of the Hundred Years' War. Edward III had used some light pieces for the first time on a battlefield at Crecy. During the 15th century, the great guns came of age as siege weapons. Though the surviving English administrative records do not specify the type or even number of guns, King Henry had undoubtedly furnished his army with a formidable battery of artillery. The cannons were served by 78 gunners, all recruited from the continent, and supplied with 10,000 gunstones to fire at the fortifications. But the French too had guns, A heavy fire from Harfleur's walls answered the English bombardment. Another technique employed against the defenses was mining. Welsh miners burrowed beneath the walls in an effort to bring them down. But the French dug countermines that reached and broke into the Welsh tunnels. This led to a violent flurry of subterranean combat, which the defenders won. Until the guns opened a breach in the walls, the English soldiers could do little except wait, in their camps pitched in the low-lying, waterlogged countryside around Harfleur. There they soon faced a new threat far more deadly than French gunstones or countermines, disease. With thousands of men and animals crammed inside them, the English siege camps soon became appallingly filthy. The monastic chronicler Thomas Walsingham mentions the rotting corpses of animals slaughtered by the army, floating with other wastes in the floodwaters and causing a terrible stench. Such conditions were ideal for the outbreak and rapid spread of dysentery. Soon English soldiers were falling sick and dying. The victims included some of the highest-ranking members of Henry V's army, the Bishop of Norwich, one of the king's most trusted confidants, the Earl of Suffolk, and the Earl of Arundel. In addition, the king's brother, the Duke of Clarence, and the Earl Marshal had to be sent home. Meanwhile, the French were gathering their forces. Since March 1415 and the failure of the Second English Embassy, the French leaders knew that war was coming. 
the Dauphin Louis took charge of the overall war effort as King Charles VI Captain General. He confided day-to-day conduct of the campaign to three key subordinates, John I, Duke of Alençon, and Charles d'Albret, Constable of France, were both seasoned commanders. The third was the Marshal of France, Jean Le Mangre, who was better known as Boussicot. He was the most famous and experienced French soldier of the day, having notably fought in the 1397 Battle of Nicopolis, in which an army of European crusaders was crushed by the Ottoman Turks. The challenge for the French was assembling enough troops quickly. In the chaos of the civil wars, the army of the reconquest had been disbanded. The French high command had to resort to the traditional methods of calling up contingents from the nobility and the towns. These summons, though, could only be issued once the English army had landed in France. The call to arms only went out on August 28, 1415. Thereafter, troops began gradually arriving in Rouen, the capital of Normandy and the mustering point of the main French army. The French war effort was further hampered by the enduring enmities between the Armagnacs and Burgundians. Though peace had been declared between the two factions in March 1415, much bad blood remained. The Dauphin wrote separate letters to Charles, Duke of Orléans, the Armagnac leader, and John the Fearless, Duke of Burgundy, asking them to send companies of 500 men-at-arms and 300 crossbowmen each to the army. However, Orléans and Burgundy were not to come in person. The Dauphin feared that their presence would lead to a renewal of infighting. Furthermore, he and King Charles worried that Duke John would seize control of Paris while the royal army was away fighting the English. By the middle of September, Harfleur's condition was desperate. The English guns had so battered the walls that an assault appeared imminent. Henry V had warned the garrison and people of Harfleur that he was conducting the siege according to the biblical laws of Deuteronomy. If the city surrendered, everyone in it could expect mercy. If the English took the city by storm, they would put the defenders to the sword and despoil the inhabitants. On September the 18th, Harfleur asked Henry for terms of surrender. The English king declared that unless a French army arrived within four days, the city must surrender unconditionally. But the growing French force at Rouen would not march to the city's rescue. Its commanders refused to fight a battle on ground of King Henry's choosing. On September 22nd, Harfleur surrendered. For three weeks following Harfleur's fall, a vigorous debate raged in the English Council of War over what to do next. The siege had taken longer than expected, and winter was approaching, which would make supplying the English army increasingly difficult. Further conquests in Normandy, which would have required more sieges, now appeared out of the question. Most of the English commanders were in favor of ending the campaign, putting a strong garrison in Harfleur, and returning home with the rest of the army. King Henry thought otherwise. The first sign that he wanted to prolong the campaign appeared on September the 26th, when he sent a message to the Dauphin challenging him to personal combat. To the victor would go the crown of France. Henry declared that he would wait at Harfleur for eight days for the Dauphin's reply. Such a reply never came, as the King of England no doubt anticipated. The Dauphin, Louis de Guienne, 
had recently commanded against the Burgundians and had put in a credible military performance. But he was better known for his devotion to sleeping, feasting, drinking, gambling, and whoring. He regularly rose at four in the afternoon, then joined his companions in another night and morning of dissolution. His entertainments had made him so enormously fat and unfit that he was in no state to make an appearance on the dueling ground. His lifestyle would contribute to his premature death in December 1415. Henry made his challenge in order to further humiliate and enrage the French by demonstrating the contrast between England's warrior king and their flabby, unwarlike prince. The eight-day interval also gave Henry valuable time to make up his mind about what to do next. King Henry finally decided to carry out a fast march from Harfleur to the English stronghold of Calais. Such a move had many advantages. It would draw French forces away from the Valley of the Seine, giving the English time to strengthen their grip on Harfleur. It would permit the English army to return home by the Calais-Dover route, the shortest and most economical sea crossing, hardly an insignificant consideration for a king who was short of funds. Perhaps most importantly, a march to Calais through enemy territory would burnish Henry's reputation and further humiliate the French, who had already been dishonored by their loss of Harfleur. Did Henry V want a battle? Most historians believe that he did not. They concede that while Henry knew his march would risk an engagement, he did not actively seek one out. They argue that the king must have realized he was seriously outnumbered, and his own army had been weakened by the siege. He therefore hoped to march so fast that he would appear to court a battle, yet safely outdistance his enemies to the haven of Calais. Furthermore, Anne Curry points out that if Henry wanted a fight, he could simply have moved against Rouen, which was just a short march down the Seine and was the mustering place for the French army. However, Clifford Rogers makes a convincing case that the English march to Calais was in fact part of a battle-seeking strategy. Henry V had the examples of Edward III and the Black Prince in mind. These glorious predecessors had won crushing victories despite being heavily outnumbered. Furthermore, just as Poitiers had led to the Great Peace of Bretigny, Henry's ambitious war aims virtually demanded a great battlefield victory. What Henry needed was to fight the French on his own terms and on ground that allowed him to make full use of the English tactical system. Henry set out from Harfleur on October the 8th, 1415. He left a strong garrison of 300 men-at-arms and 900 archers to protect his new conquest. He also left there his siege train and all his heavy baggage. His army was traveling light, with just enough pack animals to carry food and other supplies for eight days. As for the size of this army, a recent controversy has erupted. Anne Curry has asserted that it was much stronger than previously believed. Employing her masterful knowledge of the surviving English administrative records, Curry calculates that from the nearly 12,000 troops that Henry originally brought to France, 2,568 troops had to be deducted for the dead sustained during the siege from combat, as well as illness, the invalids sent back to England, and the Harfleur garrison. She concludes, We can prove that Henry still had over 8,680 soldiers with him on his march and at the battle. This figure is far higher than the numbers most other historians accept. 
As we shall see, Curry also argues that the French army was at most 12,000 soldiers. Together, her figures create a very different Battle of Agincourt than the David and Goliath clash usually portrayed. I don't buy Anne Curry's figures. Her calculations, I think, suffer from two flaws. First, the English administrative documents, indenture contracts, muster lists, records of inspections, sick rolls, pay receipts, and post-campaign reports are sadly incomplete. Second, the number Curry gives for dead from all causes at the Siege of Harfleur is only 36. This seems unbelievably low, especially because dysentery had ravaged the English siege camps for weeks. This disease was a scourge of armies right into the 20th century. With good medical care, which the English army at Harfleur definitely did not have, the mortality rate from dysentery might be reduced to 10%. Otherwise, rates were typically 25% or even higher. That many more men succumbed to the disease than are found in the surviving records is suggested by the high-ranking figures such as the Bishop of Norwich and two earls who did die from it, and others, including Henry's own brother Clarence, who had to be sent home. By virtue of their social rank, these men would have been far healthier than the common medieval soldier, received what medical care was available, and had access to a much better diet, a crucial factor in fending off dysentery. Lower-ranking English soldiers would have been far more vulnerable to infection and death. I therefore think it more likely that losses from dysentery at Harfleur, either killed or incapacitated and sent home, amounted to thousands of English troops. The army that Henry V led out on October the 8th thus likely consisted of about 1,000 men-at-arms and 5,000 archers, as historians have believed all along. King Henry V expected his march to Calais to take just eight days. The first stage went according to plan. The English army dashed along the coast of Upper Normandy on the most direct route to Calais. This march was not a chevauchée. The English troops did not maraud and pillage on a large scale, which would have slowed them down. French forces began shadowing the English army soon after it left Harfleur. Although these forces made scattered attacks on the marching columns and inflicted a few casualties, they did not slow the English progress. Things began to go wrong for King Henry and his army when they neared the Somme on October the 13th. The king had intended to cross the river near its mouth, at the ford of Blanchetac, just like his great-grandfather Edward III for Crecy 70 years before. Ten kilometers from the ford, a Gascon prisoner was brought in and interrogated by Sir John Cornwall, one of the army's toughest fighters. The Gascon revealed that Charles d'Albray, the constable of France, was at Blanchetac with 6,000 men and had strongly fortified the crossing. At this news, Henry ordered the army to halt and called a council of war. This council decided to turn away from Blanchetac and seek another crossing of the Somme further upstream. The French had guessed what Henry was doing and laid a trap for him. The Duke of Alençon, Constable d'Albray, and Marshal Boussicot had rushed up to the Somme ahead of the English. They had broken down most of the bridges and causeways and occupied most of the crossing points. Their plan was to force the enemy army to fight against the river and destroy it. Blocking the fort of Blanchetac was a major coup and a promising beginning. There now followed a deadly cat-and-mouse game. 
Henry V and his army hurried along the south bank of the Somme, searching for an unguarded crossing. A considerable French force under Constable d'Albray and Marshal Boussicot shadowed them from the north bank. With each day that passed, the English were moving upstream and inland, further away from the sanctuary of Calais. They also grew increasingly hungry, having taken only eight days' provisions with them. The French were in no hurry to bring their foes to battle. They were constantly receiving reinforcements while the English became weaker. The growing desperation of the English is vividly described in one of the best sources on the Battle of Agincourt, the chronicle called the Gesta Henrici Quinti, written by a chaplain who was accompanying the king. At that time, we thought of nothing else but this, that, after the eight days assigned for the march had expired and our provisions had run out, the enemy, craftily hastening on ahead and laying waste the countryside in advance, would impose on us, hungry as we should be, a really dire need of food, and at the head of the river, if God did not provide otherwise, would, with their great and countless host and the engines of war and the devices available to them, overwhelm us, so very few as we were, and made faint by great weariness and weak from lack of food. Why didn't King Henry attack the French forces in his way? After all, if Rogers is right, the King of England intended the march to Calais to bring about a decisive battle with the French. Yet Henry did not want to fight a battle on terms and on ground imposed by his enemies. Like Edward III and the Black Prince, he needed to fight on the defensive on a battlefield of his own choosing in order to make the most of the English tactical system. On October the 17th, the English army passed close to the walled town of Corby the town's powerful garrison launched an attack. In the skirmish that followed, the French took the standard of Aquitaine, which was a humiliation for Hugh Stafford, Lord Bircher, the standard's bearer. The honor of the Birchers was restored by a young kinsman, John Bromley, who pursued the French, recovered the standard, killed two enemy men-at-arms, and captured two others. The capture of the two French men-at-arms proved to be a great stroke of luck. When interrogated, they disclosed a critical part of the French battle plan. To counteract the huge numbers of English longbowmen, the French commanders had, as described in the Gesta, assigned certain squadrons of cavalry, many hundreds strong and mounted on barded, or armored horses, to break the formation and resistance of our archers when they engaged us in battle. King Henry immediately sent out an order that every archer was to prepare a wooden stake, two meters long and sharpened at both ends. When a battle was imminent, each archer was to hammer one end of his stake into the ground in front of him, leaving the other end pointed at waist height toward the enemy. A fence or palisade of stakes would be created that would impede or even block a cavalry charge. The English had been using improvised field fortifications to protect their archers against cavalry since the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. At Crecy, Edward III had protected his longbowmen with rows of hastily dug pits. At Poitiers, the Black Prince had carefully chosen the battlefield so that his archers were covered by hedges and marshes. But the hedgehog of stakes was new, and it had been first used in the east. At the Battle of Decapolis in 1397, the Ottoman Turks had guarded their Janissary bowmen and stopped charging Crusader cavalry with a dense field of stakes. 
news of the Turkish stakes had been disseminated widely across Europe by the Livre de Fées of Boussicot, a biography of the French marshal. It is one of the ironies of the Battle of Agincourt that Marshal Boussicot might have inspired one of the English tactical innovations that contributed to the French defeat. Around the time that King Henry ordered the stakes prepared, he made a decision that would completely change the plight of the English army. He decided to abandon the south bank of the Somme and march rapidly across country to the town of Nell. On October the 19th, at Nell, he learned of an unguarded crossing. Henry and his army rushed there and found two causeways over the Somme. The king immediately ordered his men to cross. They began at 1 p.m., and by nightfall, they were all safely over the river. Henry had given the French the slip in the nick of time. The French had concentrated their army at the walled town of Peron, just to the north of where the English army crossed. When they learned that the English had managed to elude them, the French commanders met to decide what to do next. At this council of war, the trio who had been conducting the campaign so far, Constable d'Albray, Marshal Boussicot, and the Duke of Alençon, were joined by numerous other high-ranking French nobles who had arrived at the army with their armed retinues. They decided they would bring the English to battle as soon as possible before they reached Calais. Conspicuous by their absence at Peron were King Charles VI and the Dauphin Louis. A decision had earlier been made not to risk them in battle. Also in the French leaders' minds might have been the threat of a potential coup by Duke John of Burgundy. The king and prince therefore had remained at Rouen, within easy reach of Paris. But another eminent member of the royal house of Valois was hurrying to the army. The king's nephew, Charles, the Duke of Orléans, and the leader of the Armagnac faction. He was defying the Dauphin's order to stay away and was bringing with him his powerful household army. At this point, I'd like to pause to offer up a correction. In the trailer of this episode, I mentioned that the Oriflamme, the ancient battle standard of the French kings, was present at Agincourt. Once I read more about the battle, I realized I'd made a mistake. The Oriflamme had indeed been brought out of its place of safekeeping at the Abbey of Saint-Denis in September 1415. The standard's bearer, Guillaume Martel, Sire de Bacqueville, was killed at Agincourt. But, in the words of Anne Curry, the king was not present in person at the battle, so neither was the Oriflamme. Presumably, it remained with Charles VI at Rouen. It would be used in many later battles of the Hundred Years' War. On October 20th, the English halted to enjoy a well-deserved rest after their exertions of the past week. Suddenly, French heralds appeared at their camp. They delivered messages to King Henry, summoning him to battle. The chronicler Jean Lefebvre, who is with the English army, summarizes this dramatic event in this way. The Dukes of Orléans and Bourbon and the Constable of France sent three heralds to the King of England and informed him that to help him achieve his desire, they had approached him for they knew well that, even from the moment he left his own kingdom, his desire was to give battle to the French. Moreover, they were three princes of the royal house of France who were ready to deliver and provide for his wish and what he was seeking. If he wished to appoint a day and a place to fight against them, they would be pleased to have him do so. The details should be decided upon by the representatives of both sides and should not give unfair advantage to one side or the other, for such was the wish of their king, their sovereign lord. 
To our modern eyes, this challenge seems utterly counterproductive. By issuing it, the French seem to be giving up the precious advantage of choosing the time and place of battle against a vulnerable enemy. But this invitation to a journée or a day of battle was an indispensable part of the conventions of chivalric warfare, much like Henry's challenge to the Dauphin to personal combat. Much like Henry's challenge to the Dauphin to personal combat. Just like that challenge, the letters of the French princes were designed to give them and their troops a moral and morale advantage in the engagement that was soon to come. According to Lefebvre, King Henry received the heralds with joy and replied, If the princes of France wanted to fight with him, there was no need to appoint a time or place because they could find him any day they liked in open country and without any hindrance. More practically, the king now donned his armor and ordered all his troops to do the same. On October the 21st, the English army resumed its march for Calais. As they trudged north and westwards, the weather was cold, with bitter winds and unrelenting rains. Passing beyond Peron, the English could not help but notice that the muddy road was rutted and churned up, marking the passage of thousands of French troops who had rushed ahead of them to choose a battlefield. Three days later, October the 24th, the eve of the feast day of Saints Crispin and Crispinian, amid heavy downpours, the English army crossed the Ternoise River and climbed a steep hill. When they reached the crest, Henry and his soldiers saw the sight they had long been anticipating and dreading. Just a half mile ahead, the French army, in serried ranks and with banners flying, filled a wide field between dense woodlands. The road to Calais was blocked. The English would have to fight. The battlefield of Agincourt consisted of a field perhaps a thousand meters wide, bounded on both sides by forests. To the west was the village and castle that gave the battle its name. To the east was the village of Tromcourt, the hamlet of Maisoncelle, where the English army had camped for the night and where its baggage train was positioned, was to the south. Early on the morning of October 25th, both armies deployed for battle. The English army amounted to about a thousand men-at-arms and five thousand archers. The men-at-arms were lined up in the center. They were organized into three battles, but these divisions were formed so closely together they appeared to the French as a single mass. Most of the men-at-arms were armed with lances. When lowered, these lances formed a dense hedge of four-meter-long shafts tipped with wicked iron and steel points. But behind this intimidating front, the English center was perilously thin. It was about 250 meters wide, but just four ranks deep. On either side of the men-at-arms were much broader and deeper wings of archers. These wings were not in line with the men-at-arms, but angled forward quite substantially. They each extended for 350 meters, and their ends disappeared into the forests on the edges of the battlefield. The longbowmen were formed in seven ranks. In front, they had driven their stakes into the muddy ground to form palisades. These barriers were not continuous. Every few meters in the rows of stakes were gaps just wide enough to let an archer pass through. About 250 hand-picked elite archers were not on the wings. They were deployed in two small wedges placed between the battles of men-at-arms. They had a crucial and lethal role to play once the French advance began. As soon as the English soldiers were in position, King Henry appeared before them. 
he wore his white harness, which had been burnished to a brightness that was almost blinding. Over his plate armor was a magnificent surcoat blazoned with the leopards of England quartered by the lilies of France. His helmet was circled by a golden crown studded with jewels and, even more provocatively to his enemies, golden fleur-de-lis. In as loud a voice as he could manage, Henry harangued his troops, encouraging them to acquit themselves well, reminding them of the justness of their cause, and calling on God and St. George to their aid. Then he went to where his royal banners were flying, right in the heart of the English army. Scattered around them were the banners of the other great lords of England, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, the king's brother, Edward, Duke of York, his cousin, four earls, and famous knights like Sir John Cornwall. To the north, about a kilometer over the sodden fields, was the French army. It outnumbered the English force, but by how much has been a recent subject of controversy. Anne Curry estimates the French number 12,000. Since she gives the strength of Henry's army at close to 9,000, the French outnumbered the English only slightly, by a quarter or at most a third. But again, I don't buy Curry's figures. She bases them on French administrative records, which are even more incomplete than the English ones. Most historians believe that the French army was larger. Clifford Rogers comes up with a total of 24,000 combatants. This seems much too large to me. It would make the army at Agincourt much larger than the one at Poitiers, even though France's population had grown only slightly in the intervening decades. Furthermore, the French in 1415 were missing major contingents from great lords like the Duke of Brittany and the Duke of Burgundy. Troops from south of the Loire and eastern France had also not arrived in time. I think the best estimates are given by Ian Mortimer and Jonathan Sumptian, who put French strength at 15,000, 10 to 12,000 men-at-arms and the remainder crossbowmen and other infantry. The French therefore outnumbered the English by about two and a half to one. There is a persistent belief that the French at Agincourt simply rushed headlong into combat. In fact, the French commanders had prepared an elaborate battle plan. The plan itself was discovered in the early 1980s in a manuscript in the British Library. How it fell into English hands is not known. The plan was drawn up by Marshal Boussicot, the most experienced of the French commanders, around ten days before the battle, about the time when the French intended to fight on the Somme. The French army would be deployed with most of its men-at-arms dismounted and forming a main battle line. Flanking this line, and slightly behind it, would be two strong cavalry forces. The left-wing cavalry would consist of a thousand men-at-arms mounted on the fastest and most heavily armored horses in the army. The right-wing cavalry would consist of 200 men-at-arms. In front of the army would be the crossbowmen. The French would begin the battle with cavalry charges. The French left-wing cavalry would smash into and scatter the archers on the English right. The other cavalry wing would ride around the enemy army and hit it from behind. Once the longbowmen were out of the way, the French crossbowmen would soften up the English men-at-arms. Only then would the French men-at-arms on foot engage. They would aim for the English banners, the strongest points in the enemy line, and where their commanders were to be found. If all went to plan, the French would completely overwhelm and destroy Henry V's army. At Agincourt, the French made significant modifications to Boussicot's original scheme. In the previous days, the army had seen an influx of high-ranking nobles, 
Chief among them was Charles, Duke of Orléans. Although just twenty years old and with no experience of pitched battle, Orléans became the senior Valois prince on the field and outranked the military professionals, Constable d'Albret and Marshal Boussicot. The French chronicler, Jean Juvenal des Ursins, names Orléans the leader of the main battle of men-at-arms and, by implication, nominal commander of the entire army. The incoming nobles' retinues also swelled the army's size. These reinforcements and the narrowness of the battlefield compelled the French to reorganize their dismounted men-at-arms into two divisions. The vanguard consisted of 6,000 troops and included the Duke of Orléans, the Duke of Alençon, Constable d'Albret, Marshal Boussicot, and the other important French leaders. Their troops were drawn up in a dense formation, at least 16 ranks deep and with a frontage of 300 meters. Behind the vanguard was the main battle of 3,000 men-at-arms, also drawn up in a dense mass. The cavalry formations were on either side of the vanguard, 1,000 men-at-arms on picked, heavily armored horses on the left, and 200 men-at-arms on the right. A key modification of the original plan concerned the placement of the crossbowmen. Boussico had them in front of the main formation of men-at-arms. On the field of Agincourt, they were placed behind the vanguard. Why the French made this decision and so deprived themselves of direct fire support is not known. The most likely reason is that the French commanders, reflecting on the experiences of Crecy and other combats, had concluded that the crossbowmen would cause more harm by impeding the advance of their own men-at-arms than any good they might do in a missile duel against English longbowmen. Perhaps the most consequential change to the plan was that the French took up an initial defensive posture rather than attacking immediately, as Marshal Boussicot had intended. There are many fine reasons for this change. Time was on the side of the French. The English army was trapped, exhausted, and hungry. By contrast, the French army was still growing, the nobles of northern France arriving with reinforcements with each passing hour. A great lord, Antoine, the Duke of Brabant, brother of Duke John the Fearless of Burgundy, was known to be rushing to the field. Lastly, the English tactical system was deadly on the defensive, but far less formidable in the attack. The longbowmen shot much less effectively when on the move, and the English men-at-arms would not be able to receive the French charge with an impregnable stationary wall of lances. The French decision meant that the two armies stood motionless for many hours through the cold, wet morning. King Henry now faced an excruciating dilemma. He had sought to fight a decisive engagement, but the foe had completely outgeneraled him. They had forced the time and place of battle on him, and now, by refusing to attack, they had robbed the English of their most effective tactic. Moreover, his scouts were reporting that fresh enemy troops were streaming in from all directions. The more time passed, the stronger the French army would become, the English weaker. Henry made a decision. The English would advance in hopes of provoking the French into attacking. The risks were enormous his army would be giving up a strong position. While they were moving, they would be vulnerable to a sudden French charge, particularly the long bowmen, who would be unprotected by their stakes. The king, I think, was aided in making his decision by his profound piety. Divine judgment determined victory or defeat in battle. He was placing himself and his army in God's hands. Ultimately, medieval generalship was providential generalship.
King Henry consulted his captains about his decision. They all agreed with him. Word was then passed throughout the army. The soldiers prayed to the patrons and protectors of England, St. George and Edward the Confessor. Many knelt and took a piece of earth into their mouths, an impromptu sacrament to prepare them for the ordeal to come. Then the English banners were raised. King Henry gave the order to advance. In some chronicles, his words were, advance banners. In others, fellas, let's go. The English troops sent up a great shout and began to march. For all medieval armies, the most important consideration when facing the enemy was to maintain formation. They therefore marched and maneuvered slowly, at the small step in the military parlance of the time. The English were further slowed by the condition of the ground. The relentless rain of the previous days had turned the field of Agincourt into a muddy slurry. The English trudged and struggled through this sucking muck until they reached longbow range of the French. Clifford Rogers speculates that this point coincided with a cart track that ran from east to west across the battlefield and linked the village of Agincourt to Tramcourt. Then the longbowmen planted their stakes, recreating their palisades. The French saw the English raise their banners, heard their shout, and watched them advance. Astonishingly, they did nothing. In particular, their cavalry remained motionless all the while the English longbowmen were at their most vulnerable, as they were hammering and setting their stakes into the ground. Many French horsemen had even left their units to exercise or feed their horses. The chronicles and histories do not explain why the French did not react. The simplest explanation was the French were taken by surprise and could not react in time. It was, I think, a command failure, the first of many that together would doom the French to catastrophic defeat. The English had halted about 250 meters from the French army, extreme range for their longbows. The archers reached for slim, light, light arrows, notched them to their strings, and lifted their bows to shooting position. Sir Thomas Erpingham, one of King Henry's most experienced commanders, 58 years old and white-haired, stepped out of the line of English men-at-arms, tossed his baton of office high in the air, and yelled, Now strike! His shout was taken up by the archer captains all down the wings. Even before the echoes died away, the longbowmen shot. Bowstrings snapped and thrummed. Five thousand arrows soared high into the air, tipped over at the top of their arcs, and fell on the French. There must have been a loud clatter as arrowheads struck plate armor, punctuated by screams of dismay and pain. Then, as Henry had hoped, the French came. First to come were the French cavalry. Burdened by their riders and their own armor, the great destriers struggled mightily over the sucking, slippery, muddy ground. But their men-at-arms were the finest horsemen in the army, and they forced their mounts to their best speed. The two cavalry wings were soon thundering down on the English archers. The French loosed their ancient war cry, Montjoie, sans denis, and ran into a tempest of arrows. Clifford Rogers has carefully estimated the number of arrows the French cavalrymen faced as they charged. He assumes the horsemen would have taken three minutes to cross the 250 meters separating them from the closest English archers. The longbowmen would have loosed six arrows a minute until the French reached close range at 60 meters, at which point they would have shot an arrow every six seconds. 
Each long bowman would have thus loosed at least 17 arrows during the charge. Given that the archers outnumbered the French cavalrymen 5 to 1, each horseman would have faced at least 85 arrows. Moreover, Rogers points out that as casualties climbed and more Frenchmen dropped out of the charge, the survivors would have had even more missiles aimed at them. The cavalry charges were simply shot down. The cavalry squadrons quickly lost order and formation. Many of the men-at-arms were killed or wounded as arrows punched through the visors of their helmets, found the weak points in the joints of their armor, or at close ranges even penetrated their breastplates. But the main victims were the horses, which were unmissable to men who regularly practiced shooting at targets just 45 centimeters high and wide at 200 meters distance. Any protection from armored barding was negated by the volume of incoming missiles. Most of the charging horses were quickly turned into pincushions. Some collapsed, throwing their riders on the way down. Others ran uncontrollably back toward their own lines. Still others simply stopped in their tracks and would not move despite the frantic urgings of their masters. Numerous French men-at-arms lost their nerve, turned their mounts, and fled. Only a handful of cavalrymen, luckier, more determined, and mounted on more mettlesome steeds, reached the stake palisades. Some of them tried to get through by slaloming the gaps between the stakes or knocking down a section of the barriers with the sweep of a lance. They were shot down by volleys of arrows. A few horsemen tried to smash through the barricades at speed. Most failed. The horses impaled, the riders thrown to the ground into the midst of foes. Those who got through might have been able to strike down some of their tormentors before they were pulled from their horses and dispatched in a frenzy of stabbing, pummeling, and stamping. When the French cavalry set off on their doomed charges, the vanguard of dismounted men-at-arms also began its advance. The French expected this division to win victory by smashing through the thin English center. The French leaders were in its front ranks, surrounded by their most skilled and best-armored fighters. The remainder of the 6,000 men-at-arms walked slowly and deliberately behind them, keeping order and cohesion by following the banners of their companies. But things began to go wrong for the French vanguard almost immediately. Fleeing maddened horses, many riderless, suddenly smashed into their ranks, knocking marching men into the muck, spreading chaos and confusion the vanguard quickly lost its carefully arrayed formation. Then the arrows rained down. Once they had done away with the enemy cavalry, the English longbowmen were free to focus their fire on the approaching mass of footmen. At first they shot in slow, deliberate volleys to conserve their strength and ammunition for faster firing at close range. As soon as the French men-at-arms sensed the threat of missiles, they lowered their visors and took the posture universally assumed by combatants advancing under heavy fire, heads bowed and hunched into shoulders, bodies bent forward as if leaning into a windstorm. For men in plate armor, this posture had one great advantage. It presented the maximum deflecting surface of helmets and shoulder pieces to the incoming arrows. However, this posture also meant that most of the French advanced largely blind. With their visors down, their vision was limited to what they could see out of a small, narrow slit. 
Most of the French in the middle of the formation would have only been able to glimpse the muddy ground in front of their feet and perhaps the feet and backs of their comrades ahead of them. Their hearing would also have been impaired, as their breaths would have echoed inside their helmets. With growing frequency, they would have heard the thrum of 5,000 bowstrings released in unison, then the whooshing rush of feathered arrows falling. Perhaps they would have noticed the light darken as the arrows passed overhead. A moment later, there would have been the deafening banging and clatter of impact. Trapped in such a sensory world, many French must have needed all their courage just to keep moving forward. Casualties from this long-range archery would have been light at first, limited to those unlucky to have plunging arrows find weak points in their armor, the thin plates or sheets of mail covering the joints and the helmet visor. But even at this early stage of the French vanguard's advance, not all the English archers were shooting at long range. The 250 crack archers who were deployed with the men-at-arms now sprang into action. With the cavalry off the field, they were free to run out from the protection of the main battles. They stopped 20 to 30 meters in front of the marching French and pumped arrows into them. When the French came too close, the archers ran back 20 meters, turned, and poured in more arrows. Shots straight at their targets, at flat trajectories and point-blank ranges, these arrows punched through helmets and even the thick plates covering the chest and torso. Although the men-at-arms in the front ranks of the vanguard wore the best armor in the whole French army, including the finest Milanese white harness, many would still have been killed or wounded. The French were now paying dearly for their mistake of placing their crossbowmen uselessly behind their men-at-arms. If even some of them had been present, they could have countered the English skirmishers or at least distracted them. In the crossbowmen's absence, the skirmishing archers had little to fear. Any French men-at-arms who broke ranks and charged to catch them would have instantly become a special target. In any case, French soldiers in heavy armor could hardly expect to catch agile longbowmen with a 20-meter head start. As the vanguard came on and the range came down, more plunging arrows from the longbowmen on the wings began to pierce armor and casualties increased. Even missiles that did not penetrate struck with the force of a blacksmith's hammer, knocking a man off his feet or breaking bones. Wounded men who fell faced the gruesome possibility of being trampled by their comrades. Anyone who went down face first might drown in the thick, deep mud. The nerves of some French soldiers must now have snapped, but only the ones at the edges of the formation could escape. Those in the middle could hardly push their way through all the ranks behind them. Instead, they were carried along by the press of men still marching forward. Approaching the English line, the French formation changed from a broad line to a narrower column. Two reasons account for this. First, the French battle plan had called for the attack to be concentrated on the English banners at the center of their army. And shifting inward, the French soldiers were simply doing their best to follow their orders. Second, the men-at-arms on the flanks of the formation faced the heaviest arrow fire. They naturally wanted to escape it and so shuffled and shoved toward the middle of the field. This change from line to column had hideous consequences for the French men-at-arms. They bunched up and began to collide with each other. The compression became so great that wounded men no longer fell but were held upright by the density of the surrounding crowd. 
But worst of all, the forward movement of the French vanguard carried it past the extremities of the English archer wings, which angled forward quite substantially. Much like the Romans at Cannae, the French at Agincourt walked into a double envelopment. More and more English archers could shoot into the sides and even the backs of the French men-at-arms. Because the range was now short, their arrows struck at flat trajectories with great accuracy and force. French losses climbed quickly. These frightful moments were likely what the chronicler Thomas Walsingham had in mind when he wrote, Then the cloud of arrows flew from all directions, and iron sounded on iron, while volleys of arrows struck helmets, plates, and cuirasses. Many of the French fell, pierced with arrows, here fifty, there sixty. Yet the French kept moving forward, and finally they neared the English main battles. With enormous bravery and determination, the French men-at-arms had endured one of the most terrible experiences in warfare, heavy bombardment without the ability to reply or even adequately protect themselves. Now at last, they could use the martial skills they had spent a lifetime cultivating and deal blows against enemies who were their peers in station and condition. The French men-at-arms must have felt a burst of elation and release as they rushed the final few meters into contact with the enemy. The French onset was fierce. The author of the Gesta Henrique Quinti, who watched the battle from the relative safety of the English baggage train, describes how they hurled themselves against our men in such a fierce charge as to force them to fall back a spear's length. The melee between the English and French men-at-arms, not the arrow storm, was the decisive moment in the Battle of Agincourt. If the French could cut through the four ranks of the enemy's center, they would still win the battle. The English men-at-arms, still vastly outnumbered, had to hold them. And hold them the English did. They enjoyed numerous advantages that quickly asserted themselves after the initial impact. The English men-at-arms were fresh and well-rested. Because of the absence of any French archers, they had suffered no losses. They had not even had to lower their visors until the last possible moment. Their array was carefully ordered so that when they lowered their lances, they presented a bristling hedgehog of unbroken steel and iron points. All of them stood on the drier, firmer ground of the Tramcourt-Agencourt cart track. By contrast, many of the French men-at-arms were bloody or bruised from minor arrow wounds. All were tired from having to trudge across 500 meters of thick, heavily churned, slippery-sucking mud. During the final approach, they had been compacted together in a jostling, shoving mass, which only increased their exhaustion. They had lost all semblance of formation and were fighting in a piecemeal, uncoordinated fashion. And when they struck the English line, the French men-at-arms still had their legs and feet stuck deep in the quagmire. The carnage was nevertheless ferocious. The Duke of York, Henry V's cousin and commander of the English right battle, was killed, along with ninety of his retinue. The king himself was in the thick of the fighting, again and again exposing himself to mortal danger. A group of 18 Burgundian men-at-arms in the retinue of Jehan, Sire de Croix, had sworn an oath before the battle to strike the crown off the English king's head. They managed to fight their way close enough to Henry to sever one of the provocative fleur-de-lis tines from his crown. In the process, all 18 Burgundians were killed, as were their captain, Jehan de Croix, and his two sons. 
Another French soldier who performed prodigious acts of valour was the Duke of Alençon. He killed the Duke of York, then made for King Henry. Before he could reach his target, he was surrounded by Henry's bodyguard. The French chronicler, Enguerrand de Monstrelet, describes his fate. The Duke of Alençon, seeing that he could not escape death, lifted his hand to the King of England and said, I am the Duke of Alençon and surrender myself to you. But just as the king was ready to take his oath, the duke was quickly killed by the bodyguard. In another dangerous moment, Humphrey, the king's brother and Duke of Gloucester, who was fighting at the king's side, fell with a wound to the groin. Henry stood over his brother's body and fended off his attackers until Gloucester could be dragged to safety. As the melee intensified, the French found they could not use their numbers to overpower the English. Only the French men-at-arms at the front and edges of the column could fight. Those in the middle and rear could not even see the action. Moreover, according to several accounts of the battle, they became so compressed together they could not even wield their weapons. Clifford Rogers has suggested that these men pushed on their comrades in front to create forward momentum, as in a phalanx. However, this only added to the confusion and difficulty of the men fighting in front. It was at this point that another French command failure led to bloody consequences. The French main battle, 3,000 men-at-arms strong, had been placed behind the vanguard. It should have been committed only after the vanguard had broken through the English centre. Instead, it advanced shortly after the lead division had begun moving. As it made its way down the field, the main battle was subject to arrow storms from the English longbowmen. Then it crashed into the vanguard's rear. Far from adding their numbers, weight, and momentum to a clean breakthrough of the English army, the 3,000 men-at-arms simply piled uselessly into the stalled, milling mass of French troops, further increasing congestion and compression. The climax of the battle now occurred. The English archers had been steadily shooting since the French cavalry charges had opened the battle. Many, if not most, would have loosed off all their arrows. Single-mindedly aiming for the English centre, the French foot divisions had bypassed the archers' positions on the wings. From their relatively safe vantage points, the longbowmen could see their men-at-arms battling furiously to hold the French. First by ones and twos, in small groups, then en masse, the English archers threw themselves into the melee. For arms, they had their swords, axes, daggers, and the heavy mallets they had used to plant their stakes. Many also picked up the weapons dropped by French men-at-arms and that littered the battlefield. The English longbowmen raced out from behind their palisades and fell upon the sides of the French column in what soldiers call an enveloping attack. Lightly armed and virtually unarmored, the archers would have been easy meat for French men-at-arms in a stand-up fight. But four advantages now worked in their favor. First, fighting along the sides of the French column, they had freedom of movement. They could strike and retreat as they saw fit. Second, the muddy ground inhibited everyone's movement, but the lightly armored archers were less hindered by it than the men-at-arms in their suits of armor and wielding their heavy weapons. Third, the sources suggest that the English archers attacked in packs of three, four, or five to each enemy man-at-arms. A typical pattern involved one archer distracting the man-at-arms by challenging him in front, while another archer would then circle behind and strike the Frenchman a heavy blow to knock him down. 
Once on the ground, the archers would swarm the Frenchman, pin him, pry up his visor, and dispatch him with dagger thrusts to the face and neck. Finally, the English had the advantage of surprise. The Frenchmen in the column had their attentions fixed to the front. In their heavy helmets, they would have noticed little about what was going on around them. The archers could therefore fall on them unexpectedly from the sides or behind. The intervention of the English archers turned the melee into a massacre of the French. Pressure against the English men-at-arms ceased, and they were able to drive deep into the column themselves. French casualties now increased dramatically. So many French men-at-arms were packed so tightly together that as they were slaughtered and fell, the bodies piled up in tall mounds. The author of the Gesta vividly describes the gruesome culmination of Agincourt. For when some of them, killed when battle was first joined, fall at the front, so great was the undisciplined violence and pressure of the mass of men behind that the living fell on top of the dead, and others, falling on top of the living, were killed as well, with the result that, in each of the three places where the strong contingents guarding our standards were, such a great heap grew of the slain and of those lying crushed in between that our men climbed up those heaps which had risen above a man's height and butchered their enemies down below with swords, axes, and other weapons. At last, after many hours of fighting, three according to the Gesta author, the French began to flee en route. The English, exhausted by their bloody work, began seizing prisoners among the fleeing French. They also pulled apart the piles of bodies and took captive anyone still alive. Most of the English soldiers probably thought the fighting had ended, but there now occurred the most notorious incident of the Battle of Agincourt, and in fact of Henry V's entire reign. Three events seem to have occurred more or less simultaneously. First, word was brought to the king of an attack on the English baggage train. In fact, the lord of Agincourt and his peasants had carried out an opportunistic raid in which they had made off with some valuable plunder, including Henry's crown, his ceremonial sword of state, and the seal of the Chancellor of England. Second, some French troops, likely of the less engaged main battle, rallied and began to organize themselves into coherent units on the northern edge of the battlefield. Third, a French grandee, Antoine, Duke of Brabant, arrived. Brabant had rushed to the battlefield from Lens, 48 kilometers away. He immediately launched an attack on the English army with his entourage. The attack failed, and Brabant himself was killed. The raid on the baggage train, the rallying of French troops, and Brabant's attack convinced Henry V that the enemy were about to renew the battle. He feared that the very large numbers of French prisoners might take up the many weapons scattered on the ground and attack the English. He therefore gave the controversial order to kill them. The English men-at-arms and most of the archers refused to carry out his order, as contrary to their honor and even more grievously to their purses. The prisoners represented a lucrative windfall to the English soldiers because of the ransoms their families would pay for their release. But Henry insisted and organized a special detail of 200 archers led by a squire to execute the French. They did so, starting with the lowest ranking, least valuable prisoners, by cutting their throats or stabbing them in their faces. The killing of the prisoners has left a stain on the reputations of Henry V and the English army. Modern historians have condemned it as an outright atrocity that quite offended against the conventions of warfare. 
Henry's actions may seem even more appalling to our eyes because he was an ostentatiously devout Christian king. In 2010, a legal panel, led by the U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, held a mock trial that found Henry V guilty of war crimes. Yet the killings were understandable, justifiable, and even pardonable in the context of the Hundred Years' War. Both the French and the English had fought with the convention that no prisoners would be taken until a battle was decided. At Agincourt, the sudden, isolated attacks and the rallying of some French troops indicated that the fighting could be renewed at any moment. The French prisoners represented a clear and present danger to the English army. Massacring them was a legitimate, even necessary action. Far from being a deed that quite offended against the conventions of warfare, Henry V's order to massacre his army's captives received no criticism from any of the medieval sources, even the most partisan French ones. The massacre of the prisoners also had a definitive term. It ended as soon as the last French troops began withdrawing. Dozens, at most hundreds, but certainly not thousands of French prisoners had been killed. 1,500 survived to be profitably ransomed in the weeks and months after Agincourt. Among the prisoners was Marshal Boussicot. The Duke of Bourbon, one of the highest-ranking French peers, was captured by an ordinary man-at-arms named Ralph Fone. Arthur, Lord of Richemont, brother to the Duke of Brittany, was pulled from beneath the bodies of three knights. His surcoat was so drenched in blood that his captors could not at first identify him. The most important prisoner was Charles, Duke of Orléans, leader of the Armagnac faction and commander-in-chief of the French army. Orléans had fought bravely during the battle and had to be rescued from beneath a pile of corpses. He was taken to England and held captive for the next 25 years. A writer of considerable talent, he spent much of his time composing love poetry in both English and French. When he was finally released in 1440, he was said to speak better English than French. The Battle of Agincourt was an English triumph as crushing as Crecy and Poitiers. The French army had been largely wiped out. The French dead amounted to 6,000 and included Constable d'Albray, three dukes, eight counts, and one viscount. The English losses were surprisingly few. The best estimate is 200 men-at-arms and archers dead. In the fortnight leading up to the battle, Henry V had been completely outgeneraled by the French. He had first been blocked from his chosen crossing of the Somme River at the fort of Blanchetac. He had then been forced to lead his army on an exhausting and hungry march away from their sanctuary at Calais. Only by a lucky stroke was he able to cross the Somme before the French attacked him. Finally, he had been forced to give battle on his enemy's terms and on ground of his own choosing. Henry V and his army had redeemed themselves on the day of battle. The English king's decision to advance was monumentally risky. It was also a stroke of genius that completely turned the tables on the French and allowed the English to fight to their tactical strengths. His leadership had been inspirational and personally courageous. His troops had fought cohesively, skillfully, and with great tenacity. Yet it was the French who lost the battle more than the English won it. In particular, the French commanders made a series of mistakes that not only doomed them to defeat, but to catastrophe. First, before the battle, they fatally changed their plan. Boussicot's original scheme was a good one. 
carefully designed to counter the English tactical system, it would have stood an excellent chance of success. Yet, on the day of battle, the French first and foremost chose the wrong battlefield. Boussico's plan would have worked best on flat, open ground. On such terrain, the French would have been able to take full advantage of their numerical strength. By simply spreading out their army, they would have forced Henry V to stretch the English troops dangerously thin. Above all, the French cavalry would have easily been able to ride around the English army's flanks. Such a battlefield in fact existed in the open countryside just north of the villages of Agincourt and Tramcourt. Instead, the French chose to fight in the most constricted terrain in the whole area, the so-called pass between the village's two forests. The French then compounded their mistake by deploying their army badly. Their vanguard and main battle formations were too deep, rendering most of their men-at-arms useless. Their cavalry units were too weak to deal with the very large number of English longbowmen. Moreover, the horsemen were forced to make frontal attacks because the English wings were anchored on the impassable woods. But the most egregious problem with the French deployment was the placement of the substantial force of crossbowmen behind the vanguard. The French robbed themselves of missile support to counter the enemy archers or weaken their men-at-arms. Clifford Rogers, who has written perhaps the most astute tactical study of Agincourt, does not mince words about the modified French battle plan. Their choice of battlefield could have been a good one with a different formation. Their deployment could have worked well on a different battlefield. But to array their forces in the way they did on the ground they chose was little short of idiotic. The disastrous decision-making continued once the battle began. Two decisions deserve particular opprobrium. First, by failing to attack the English during their opening advance, the French threw away their best chance of winning the battle. Second, the premature commitment of the second division converted defeat into a 15th century canai by feeding more French men-at-arms into the meat grinder of the English envelopment. Of around 10,000 men-at-arms involved in the fighting, 60% were killed, a higher proportion than at Crecy and Poitiers. Who was responsible for the awful French command performance at Agincourt? This question is difficult to answer. None of the sources on the battle clearly identify who was in overall charge of the French army on St. Crispin's Day. As the senior Valois prince on the field, the Duke of Orléans was most likely in nominal command. However, he undoubtedly made his decisions with considerable input from Constable d'Albret, Marshal Boussicot, and the other military professionals who had been skillfully conducting the campaign so far. The most likely answer is that the failure of French command was a collective one. Some historians argue that the French performance at Agincourt was undermined by the rivalries between the Armagnac and Burgundian factions. The French army was supposedly dominated by Armagnacs, as the Burgundians were stopped from sending their full forces. It is true that neither Duke John of Burgundy nor his heir, Philip, Count of Charolais, were present at Agincourt. But the Duke encouraged his followers to fight. Duke John's brothers, the Duke of Bar and the Duke of Brabant, and at least 24 prominent Burgundian lords died in the battle. The French civil wars would soon reignite, yet Agincourt itself was a united French effort against a common enemy. As the memorable feast day of Saints Crispin and Crispinian drew to a close, King Henry summoned the heralds of England and France. 
By virtue of their office, the heralds were impartial observers. They had watched the combat together. As at a joust or a tournament, their role was to record deeds of conspicuous valor and ultimately award the laurel of victory. Henry asked Montjoie, king of arms, the senior French herald who had the victory. Montjoie replied that the king of England had won the trial by battle and so proved his cause was just. The king then asked the herald the name of the castle that overlooked the field. When told it, Henry declared that the battle should now and forever be called Agincourt. Agincourt established Henry V's reputation as a great, divinely sanctioned king and made his authority unquestioned in England. Even before he returned home, Parliament met and approved a further generous subsidy. Then, in a move wholly without precedent in English history, the assembly voluntarily granted to the king for the rest of his life the revenues from customs duties on all imports and exports. It was both a vote of confidence in the king and approval to continue his war. Henry used these augmented financial resources to ready a new invasion of France. The preparations took 20 months. In the meantime, his brother, John, Duke of Bedford, commanded a fleet that defended Harfleur against the French. On August 15, 1416, Bedford defeated a French and Genoese armada in a hard-fought battle at the mouth of the Seine. The fighting lasted for seven hours and inflicted heavy losses on both sides. Bedford would subsequently emerge as the last great English commander of the Hundred Years' War. On August 1, 1417, King Henry returned to Normandy with an army of 10,000 men. He also pursued a new strategy. Gone was the chevauchée, the wide-ranging raid meant to destroy French resources, humiliate French rulers, and provoke French armies to fight. The English would now conquer Normandy. This strategy depended on successful sieges. Learning from his experience at Harfleur, Henry had equipped his army with a powerful siege train and contingents of specialist miners and engineers. Furthermore, he was also able to divide his army and attack multiple targets simultaneously. For the next two years, the English systematically took walled towns and strongholds. The campaign, the longest of the Hundred Years' War, culminated with the siege of the Norman capital of Rouen in July 1418. The city surrendered six months later. By the summer of 1419, all of Normandy was in Henry's hands. Only the great fortified abbey of Mont-Saint-Michel, perched high on its tidal island in the far west of the country, remained to the French. To hold his new conquest, Henry methodically created a friendly population. Normans, who were willing to give him allegiance and collaborate with the English, were treated well. Those who refused were stripped of their lands and forced into exile in the Valois-ruled part of France. Henry then took the confiscated lands, which ranged from vast estates to little plots, and awarded them to his soldiers in exchange for their promise to defend Normandy in the future. In this way, the king created a powerful vested interest in England in the success of the war in France. The English conquest of Normandy was decisively helped by two French weaknesses. First, the trauma of Agincourt was still fresh for French generals and soldiers. They refused to meet the English on the battlefield, especially if King Henry was in command. The second, and more important reason, was the renewal of the civil war between the Burgundians and the Armagnacs. As we've seen, contrary to what many historical writers once believed, at Agincourt, 
the two factions had united against the common enemy. The defeat reignited all the old hostilities. The Burgundians rushed to blame the Armagnacs for the disaster. This may seem strange, given that Duke John of Burgundy had not been present at the battle. But the Armagnacs had been completely discredited by the capture of most of their leaders, including Charles of Orléans. By contrast, Duke John's brothers, the Duke of Bar and the Duke of Brabant, and many of his closest followers had died fighting. Therefore, the Burgundians could cast themselves as heroes, the Armagnacs as cowards. In April 1417, Duke John issued a manifesto in which he accused the Armagnacs of, among other things, deliberately permitting Henry to invade France and to win the Battle of Agincourt. At the same time, Duke John was playing a devious double game by negotiating with King Henry. The Duke of Burgundy met with the King of England at Calais in 1416. Historians remain uncertain about whether the two leaders concluded a secret alliance. What can be said with certainty is that following the meeting, Duke John did not interfere in the English conquest of Normandy, instead concentrating his forces to fight against the Armagnacs. In May 1418, Burgundian troops entered Paris and Duke John seized control of the Mad King, Charles VI. The Burgundians then carried out a bloody purge of their enemies in the capital. As recorded in the journal of an anonymous Parisian bourgeois, there was not one of the principal streets of Paris without a killing in it. The dead were heaped up in piles, in the mud, like sides of bacon. The Dauphin Charles escaped and fled to the southern city of Bourges, where he assumed leadership of the Armagnacs. By 1419, Henry's conquest of Normandy placed the English within reach of Paris. This threat pushed the Armagnacs and Burgundians to try to make peace. On September 10, 1419, the Dauphin Charles and Duke John of Burgundy met on the bridge of Montereau to conclude a treaty of friendship. However, the Armagnac and Burgundian conflict had always been more than just a civil war. It had also been a merciless blood feud that had been ignited by Duke John's murder of Louis, Duke of Orléans, in 1407. On the bridge of Montereau, the supporters of the Dauphin and the Duke exchanged insults. A wild melee broke out during which one of the Dauphin's followers smashed Duke John's head with a battle axe. This is the hole by which the English entered France, was how a 16th century monk succinctly explained the significance of Duke John's fatal wound. Following the killing of his father on the bridge of Montereau, Philip, the new Duke of Burgundy, forged an alliance with King Henry V against the Armagnacs. The formidable Burgundian army was added to the English forces. With the Burgundians now his allies, Henry set his sights on a new ambition to make reality his claim to the throne of France. In 1420, he launched an offensive down the Seine toward Paris. The French were too divided and weak to resist. They rushed to make peace. The Treaty of Troyes of May 1420 appeared to be a complete triumph for Henry. He was formally made the heir of the mad king Charles VI. Furthermore, he was to marry Catherine, the French king's daughter, and their sons were to be kings of France after Henry. The Dauphin Charles and his offspring were formally disinherited. On December the 11th, 1420, Henry V made a triumphal entry into Paris. For the English, the Treaty of Troyes was the final peace that replaced the Great Peace of Bretigny. Yet the Armagnacs immediately repudiated it. From his court at Bourges, 
the Dauphin Charles continued to claim to be the legitimate heir to his father. Henry V and the English then committed themselves to the most expansive war aim of all, fighting on until the entire Kingdom of France agreed to the terms of the final peace. The years from 1420 to 1444 represented the longest period of sustained fighting of the entire Hundred Years' War. The Armagnacs and the other supporters of the Dauphin appeared hardly a match for the powerful combination of the English and Burgundian. In order to find more forces, the Dauphin Charles turned to the old alliance with Scotland. In 1419, the Scots dispatched a substantial expeditionary force to France. Dubbed the Great Army of Scotland, this force was particularly noteworthy because the Scots had raised a strong corps of longbowmen of their own. On March 22, 1421, at Beauge in Anjou, the French and the Army of Scotland wiped out an English army. The English commander, Thomas, Duke of Clarence, King Henry's brother, was killed, along with numerous notable veterans of Agincourt. Unfortunately, no reliable and detailed descriptions of the Battle of Beauge exist. I would have liked to have known more about it, especially the role of the Scots archers. Beauge was the greatest English battlefield defeat of the war so far. It burnished the reputation of Scottish soldiers and drew the French and Scots even closer together. The Guard Écossaise, the Scots Guard, were ever afterwards the nearest troops to the person of the French king. Yet Beauge was largely barren of results. At the time of the battle, Henry V had been in England, crowning his new queen. He returned to France and vigorously renewed campaigning. Agincourt continued to work its spell on the French, who feared to give battle whenever the king was in command. Henry concentrated his efforts on taking the strongholds and cities around Paris. In the fall of 1421, he besieged the fortress town of Meaux. During the siege, he fell gravely ill. On August 31, 1422, Henry V, England's greatest warrior king, died at the castle of Vincennes, just outside Paris. His successor was his nine-month-old son, who became King Henry VI. Listeners to this podcast have heard me mention that historians tend to reject contingent events like the deaths of individuals, no matter how great, as having much of an effect on the course of history. Rather, the real historical drivers are massive, long-term, impersonal, social, economic, cultural, environmental, or medical forces. For the last one, think of the Black Death, which killed many, many more Europeans than all medieval wars put together. But after giving it a lot of thought, I must conclude that the death of King Henry V of England was a turning point of the Hundred Years' War specifically and of European history in general. By the end of his reign, Henry was the most powerful monarch in Christendom. He had pursued, with relentless determination, first the conquest of English domains in France, then the French throne itself. His successors included some fine generals and worthy statesmen, yet none were his equal, nor could they come close to matching his prestige and reputation. Nevertheless, I don't think even Henry V could have achieved a lasting union of the two kingdoms. Too many French opposed it, and England was, as we'll see, ultimately not strong enough to achieve such a goal. What would have likely happened had Henry lived was a partition of France that would have seen England permanently annexing Normandy and Aquitaine. 
the histories of England and France would then have been strikingly different. The war in France was now in the hands of John, Duke of Bedford, uncle and regent of the child king Henry VI. The French soon moved to test the new English regime. On October 1422, the mad king Charles VI had died. The Dauphin then claimed the throne as King Charles VII of France. With their old nemesis, Henry V, out of the way, Charles VII and his generals decided on a battle-seeking strategy in order to inflict a decisive defeat on Bedford and the English army. To bolster their forces, they went on a European recruiting spree. The Scots furnished another army of 2,500 men-at-arms and 4,000 archers. In addition, from Italy, the French hired a force of 2,000 Lombard heavy cavalry. The Lombards rode horses wearing a new type of plate barding developed by Milanese armorers that gave significant protection against longbow arrows. In the face of the French threat, Bedford raised an army of about 10,000 men. It consisted of his own large retinue, English troops pulled from the garrisons of Normandy, and Normans in English service. The two armies met at Verneuil on August the 17th, 1424. Bedford deployed in the usual English style with longbowmen flanking men-at-arms. The battle began with a charge by the Lombard heavy cavalry. Thanks to their horses' heavy armor, the Lombards rode through the arrow storm unscathed. They then smashed into and broke through the English center, cutting Bedford's army in half. The Lombards carried on to attack and pillage the English baggage train. Remarkably, the English troops rallied. Bedford and his captains decided on an immediate counterattack before the Lombard heavy cavalry could return. With a great shout, the English advanced on the French and Scots. A fierce melee ensued. After shooting off their arrows, the English and Scottish longbowmen joined the hand-to-hand fighting. Eventually, the English prevailed. In the bloody rout that followed, the Scots were given no quarter and annihilated. In Orléans, the French celebrated Mass for the souls of the Scottish dead on the anniversary of Verneuil until the end of the 18th century. Verneuil was an English victory almost as great as Agincourt. The battle demonstrated that English discipline and fighting powers were at their peaks. Above all, it showed that English prowess did not depend on one man, Henry V. Verneuil also had important strategic consequences. It secured Normandy and Paris from French attacks. It also led to the English conquest of Maine and Anjou. In 1428, Bedford began an invasion of the so-called Kingdom of Bourges, the territories south of the Loire River loyal to Charles VII. For the French, the dark times of the 1340s and 1350s appeared to have returned. Yet they would now stage a remarkable comeback. The Loire proved to be a river too far for the English. Taking the numerous fortresses, guarding the river barrier, overstretched the English military forces, which were already strained by 13 years of continuous warfare. In the summer of 1428, the English besieged Orléans. The siege became the focus of both sides. Then, in the spring of 1429, a peasant girl from Lorraine, Joan of Arc, appeared before Charles VII claiming that she had been sent by God to raise the siege. Despite skepticism from many in his court, Charles allowed her to lead the French army. On May 8, 1429, 
Joan defeated the English outside Orléans. Her victory restored French morale and hopes. In the words of the famous writer Christine de Pizan, the sun began to shine again. In the aftermath of the victory at Orléans, the French went on the offensive. At the Battle of Pâté on June 18, 1429, the French caught the English before they could establish their defensive formation. A cavalry charge by the French vanguard enveloped the English longbowmen. Pâté wrecked the English field army and wiped out the corps of veteran archers in France. In the ensuing months, the French drove into northern France against little resistance. Their triumphant campaign culminated with the coronation of Charles VII, with Joan of Arc standing by his side in the Cathedral of Reims, the traditional crowning site of French kings, on July 17, 1429. A fundamental challenge had now been leveled against the so-called Final Peace of Troyes. The English position in France teetered on the brink of collapse, yet it was now their turn to rally. They poured 10,000 troops into France to hold Normandy and especially Paris. The Burgundians also intervened. In May 1430, they captured Joan of Arc outside Compiègne. Joan was handed over to the English, who tried her at Rouen and burned her at the stake. By the next year, the English felt secure enough to bring the 10-year-old Henry VI to Paris to be crowned King of France at Notre-Dame Cathedral. Many French people noted that the coronation had not taken place at Reims. The English and French had fought themselves to a stalemate. The deadlock would be broken by a turning point second only in significance to the death of Henry V. In the early 1430s, Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy, had opened negotiations with King Charles VII. The capture of Joan of Arc aside, Burgundian support for the English had been sporadic. Duke Philip had instead concentrated on extending Burgundian territory in the Low Countries. The Duke waited for the death of his close friend Bedford in 1435 to break Burgundy's alliance with England. By the Treaty of Arras, Philip the Good recognized Charles VII as King of France. This reversal of alliances sounded the death knell for England's ambitions in France. Throughout the Hundred Years' War, English success had depended on French disunity. With France now united under King Charles VII, enormous resources could be brought to bear against the remaining English possessions. In 1436, the French recaptured Paris. That the war still did not end was due to the massive military effort mounted by the English. In 1436, 10,000 troops were sent to save Calais and Normandy. Between 1440 and 1443, another 13,000 crossed the Channel. Even at the end of their military strength, the English were still formidable. Unable to finish the fight, the French agreed to a truce in 1444. With the truce, the English war machine completely broke down. After turning 16 in 1437, King Henry VI had taken up the reins of government. Indecisive and weak-willed, he was nothing like his father. To save money, the English government made defense cuts in Normandy, allowing its garrisons to run down and its fortifications to fall into disrepair. Even worse, Henry VI agreed to surrender Maine. Intended to assist peace negotiations, this move was a disaster because the French saw it as a sign of weakness. Charles VII made good use of the truce to reform and reinforce his army. 
1440, he had resurrected the standing army created by his grandfather Charles the Wise by establishing the Compagnie d'Ordonnance of heavy cavalrymen. By 1445, the Compagnie had a strength of 12,000. In addition, in 1448, the French king created a national infantry militia. Each parish in France was to provide a franc archer. What is especially striking is that these archers were to be longbowmen. The militia scheme could raise up to 8,000 troops for a single campaign. Moreover, Charles VII, like the English kings, required these troops to practice regularly with the longbow. However, because the French lacked a yeoman class, they could never develop a deep reservoir of expert archers. Perhaps fortunately, the Franc archers never had to face their English counterparts in a pitched battle. Far more effective than the Franc archers was Charles VII's reform of the French artillery train. The King of France appointed two artillery pioneers, the brothers Jean and Gabriel Bureau, to overhaul his cannon arm. They introduced new, more effective guns, crewed them with better gunners, and developed more effective tactics. The English then foolishly gave the French an occasion to repudiate the truce and return to war. In 1449, the English captured the fortress of Fougeres in Brittany as a way to intimidate the Duke of Brittany, who was drawing closer to France. Instead, Charles VII declared war and unleashed a carefully prepared invasion of Normandy. The French armies stormed through the province in a blitzkrieg, few places holding out for more than a few days. The English managed to scrape together and send a field army. However, on April 15, 1450, it was crushed by the French at the Battle of Formigny. During this battle, the French judiciously used their artillery to batter the English out of their defensive position. Out in the open, the English were then cut up by a French and Breton cavalry charge. The last English outpost in Normandy, Cherbourg, fell on August the 12th. The French finally turned their attention to Aquitaine. Although the war had begun there, Aquitaine had been largely quiet since 1415. In 1451, the French invaded and overran much of the duchy. The English were able to send a last expeditionary force in 1453 under John Talbot, a commander of long experience. At Castillon, the English army was decimated by French artillery fire and Talbot was killed. Bordeaux, capital of Aquitaine, surrendered on October the 19th, 1453. The Battle of Agincourt had indeed been a noble beginning for Henry V, but his death in 1422 robbed him of the chance to compose a suitable ending. The final chapter of the Hundred Years' War was instead written by Henry V's heir. Upon learning of the loss of Bordeaux, King Henry VI fell into madness. It is likely that he had inherited mental illness from his grandfather, Charles VI. If so, then France's mad king had the last laugh on his English foes. For the madness of Henry VI would lead to the outbreak of the long and brutal struggle for the English throne called the Wars of the Roses. It was now England's turn to suffer civil war. By then, the English only held Calais and its hinterland, the Pale. This last fragment of France was lost in 1558. Afterwards, the English only had the claim to the French throne. The kings of England would only stop calling themselves kings of France in 1802, 
eight years after the French revolutionaries had sent King Louis XVI to the guillotine. This ends Agincourt, Episode 4 of Great Battles in History. My name is Daryl D. If you have any questions or comments, I would love to hear from you. My email address is greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, at The Great Battles. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Finally, I'd like to acknowledge the support of the Laurier Center for Military, Strategic, and Disarmament Studies, particularly our liege lord Kevin Spooner, the director of the center, and his band of knights, Matt Baker, Eric Story, Kyle Falcon, and Matt Morden. Thank you very much for listening.